All right, well, welcome everybody to uh, this uh, debate that we have here tonight. Um, it's amazing to see everybody out in light of the uh, very cold and snowy temperatures that we have here outside at, uh, uh, in Colorado. Um, but my name is Ian Clary. I uh, teach uh, historical theology here at Colorado Christian University. And I wanted to welcome you on behalf of Colorado Christian University and the School of Theology in which I teach. And uh, what I'd like us to do is uh, pray and uh, read scripture. Um, so I'm gonna read from Psalm uh, chapter two to get us underway, and then I'm gonna read a prayer actually on church unity. Um, we have a debate like this, and the temptation in our culture can be to become divided uh, between two opposing positions, uh, where it becomes like a sort of a zero-sum game where we, we kind of like vilify our opponents. And that's not what we wanna be doing uh, in an event like this tonight. Uh, the Davenant Institute, which is hosting this de debate, uh, really stresses what we call uh, reformed irenicism, and I want that as kind of like uh, to, to kind of reign here in terms of a, a general uh, attitude and atmosphere. So I'm going to read from Psalm 2, and if, if you could, uh, would you stand with me as we read uh, this together? So this is what Holy Scripture says. Why do the heathen so furiously rage together, and why do the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth stand up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Sion. I will preach the law whereof the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Desire of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the utmost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt bruise them with a rod of iron, and break them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be learned, ye that are judges of the earth. Serve the Lord in fear, and rejoice unto him with reverence. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and so ye perish from the right way. If his wrath be kindled, yea, but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, we humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Bless our land with honorable industry, sound learning, and pure manners. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogance, and from every evil way. Defend our liberties and fashion into one united people all our many kindreds and tongues, and do with thy spirit the spirit of wisdom, those to whom in thy name we entrust the authority of government, that there may be justice and peace at home, and that through obedience to thy law we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In the time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness, and the day of trouble, suffer not our trust in thee to fail. All which we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So CCU is very pleased to partner with the Davenant Institute uh, to host another event on our campus. I just did a count and I think this is our fourth event here on our campus over the last number of years. Uh, and this one on a very relevant debate, uh, the debate uh, will, that will be um, considered tonight will be on religious liberty and the common good. Uh, so since its beginning in 1914, CCU has been committed uh, to robust academic discourse uh, that has applications uh, to the lives of Christians and of the church. And so we describe our mission here at CCU as providing Christ-centered education, higher education, transforming students to impact the world with grace and truth. 
and I'm confident that tonight's debate will do exactly this. The Davenant Institute shares a similar vision. Uh, founded in 2013, Davenant grew out of a group of friends who were very eager to seek a kind of renewal of scholarship and intellectual life in contemporary Protestantism uh, at an institutional level. We got tired of, you know, uh, division between, con uh, between confessionalism and evangelicalism, and the Institute uh, is very eager to see a fresh engagement with a Protestant theological heritage uh, that is pursued in aid of the church. And so in an age when uh, the church has become progressively unmoored from its roots and unable to speak with true conviction, uh, the Davenant Institute is committed to reintegrating past and present and reintegrating word and world. And so we do this in three ways. We return to sources. And so if you look at that book table over there, you're going to see a, a collection of various types of literature, whether that be books, uh, journals, uh, and then um, various brochures for the type of teaching uh, that Davenant does uh, in order to engage with the sources that, are from the, that, that draw from the riches of the Christian past. Uh, Davenant wants to reimagine theological education, much like CCU wants to, in terms of an engagement with a kind of a historic way of teaching rooted in the medieval university. And one of the things I absolutely love about Davenant is it wants to do this uh, with a grounding in true friendship. What does it mean to be a Christian friend? And how can Christian friends come together? We, we describe it even as a kind of army of friends come together uh, in, a, in a kind of a, a bond of like-mindedness as we pursue these aims. Um, so I'd like to introduce our speakers tonight. Uh, very pleased to do this. Uh, and I want to start here with uh, Dr. Jonathan Lehman. Dr. Lehman is a very well-known author. Um, he's the editorial director of Nine Marks Ministry, which is a ministry that had a huge impact on me when I was pastoring in Toronto. Uh, and uh, Nine Marks is located in Washington, D.C. that also has a great aim of wanting to uh, reinvigorate the church uh, in our day and doing so again with an engagement with the past. Dr. Lehman has degrees in political science. Uh, he's got a Master of Divinity, PhD in theology. And he's the editor of the Nine March Journal, and uh, relevant to tonight, of the many books he's either uh, authored or contributed to, um, his book Political Church is one that, um, that has had a very significant impact for political theology. Dr. Brad Littlejohn, uh, sitting over here uh, also to my right, is the president, founding president of the Davenant Institute. Uh, he's a fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, PhD, uh, his PhD comes from the University of Edinburgh, where he studied under uh, Oliver O'Donovan, a very important thinker in our day. Uh, and uh, his work uh, was in the, uh, the English Reformational theologian uh, Richard Hooker. Um, so both of these men are very, very qualified to be discussing these matters. This is actually part of a long-standing uh, a go a long, a discussion uh, that uh, we get privileged to listen in on tonight. Um, so tonight's uh, debate will kind of uh, follow this basic format. Brad will begin with a, an opening statement uh, that will go for some 25 minutes, and then that will be followed by Dr. Lehman and uh, his opening, which will be 25 minutes. They'll be, uh, each will have then a 10-minute response to one another, and then there'll be about a, roughly about 40 minutes of just kind of a free-flowing exchange between the two, and then finally we'll have about a half an hour of Q&A from the room. Um, so could you guys uh, give, me, uh, help, give them a, a round of applause as they come to the stage here, uh, and then we'll begin our time. You want both or just one at a time? Yeah, you can come on up. Yeah, so go ahead, Brad. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you 
to uh, Dr. Sweeting, uh, Dr. Cotter, and the whole uh, CCU community for welcoming us for this event. Uh, as Ian said, this is our fourth time here, and uh, we, really, we really appreciate the partnership we've established over the years with, with CCU and the community here. So, um, here, mic a little closer, there we go. Uh, all right, so, um, when I told people about this debate that I was going to be doing, that I'd be doing a debate on religious liberty this fall, the, the common response was people kind of further brow and be like, you're debating religion, which of you is against religious liberty? Uh, it, saying you're against religious liberty in modern America is kind of like saying you're against kittens, right? And nobody's, nobody's, nobody's anti-kitten, right? And I love kittens, in fact. But just because I'm in favor of kittens doesn't mean that I don't think there's something amiss in a culture where people refer to their cats as their children or grandchildren, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's possible to make too much of a good thing. It's possible to make an idol, and I would say we can make we can make an idol out of religious liberty. Also, just because I am unabashedly pro-kitten, that does not mean that I cannot support reasonable restrictions on kitten rights for the sake of the common good. For instance, I'm glad to see that none of you here have brought your kittens into this debate hall. If you had, we might have had to had have, have had to ask you to leave them outside. Finally, I know that there are times in church history when societies did not value kittens in the same way that modern Americans do, and they were just treated as pests. And I refuse to hold my ancestors in contempt just because they did not cherish these furry little pets as much as we do. Now, at this point, I think I should leave the, the kitten metaphor behind, uh, lest it should become strained to the breaking point. However, tongue-in-cheek though it is, I think it does gesture in the direction of three main points that I want to make tonight. I have three main concerns about religious liberty discourse. First, in contemporary usage, uh, the terminology of religious liberty has increasingly, I think, left the door wide open to relativism and anarchy. We have equated religious liberty with liberty of conscience, which is not quite the same thing, and we've, and we've increasingly equated conscience with any deeply held beliefs uh, and the right to act on any deeply held beliefs. So, and as I'll get to in a bit, I think this, this creates serious problems for Christians investing in a religious liberty discourse that ultimately could be used to justify acting out any deeply held beliefs, including those that we reject. Uh, so the more that we invest in the language of religious liberty without interrogating it, I think the more we undermine our own cause as Christians seeking the renewal of a godly society. Second, I think a one-sided emphasis on religious liberty, at least as currently conceived, blinds us to the inescapably moral and religious character of government. I'm going to argue that every government must in some way um, acknowledge, promote, support some kind of religion through its laws and institutions. And if we, if we treat every such promotion of religion as a violation of religious liberty, then we're going to have a problem. Uh, so we need to recover an understanding of the proper God-given task of government to promote right religion. Third, by valorizing expansive religious liberty rights as self-evident universal human rights, it seems to me that we encourage the very chronological snobbery that is destroying the foundations of the church and our civilization. 
if you think that religious liberty, as we now conceive it and practice it, is just a universal human right, then you cannot avoid the conclusion that our ancestors that didn't extend the same kind of religious liberty were benighted bigots, which is what our society wants to treat them as. So I think as, if we as Christians, uh, obviously, the church should be always reforming, and it's certainly possible that our ancestors consistently got some key things wrong. But I think that if, there, if, if we find ourselves on the different side of an issue from the vast majority of church history, we should, we should pause for a second and, and interrogate ourselves before assuming that we have discovered something uh, that none of our ancestors understood. So, um, and I think this is, I think the, the myth of American exceptionalism plays in here particularly. I think American Christians, we have this whole story, America was formed by people fleeing from religious persecution in Europe, and we're the first society in history to, to value religious liberty, and so we are meant to be the sort of beacon of light to all nations and all ages uh, in a way that I think um, leads us to, again, look down on our Christian ancestors uh, in a way that undermines, ultimately, the witness of the church. So this third point, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend time on, I think it sort of, I think it's fairly self-explanatory, and I think uh, if, if you don't accept the other two points, then you're going to say, well, it doesn't matter that our ancestors, you know, um, didn't, had a different view on this, they were just wrong, right? Uh, but I think if you, if you accept my case in the first two points, you'll see um, you'll hopefully be prompted to look at the rest of Christian history in a somewhat different light than we often do. So, for my first point, remember I want to emphasize that in contemporary usage, the language of religious liberty has left the door wide open to relativism and anarchy. Okay, not every claim made on behalf of religious liberty is, uh, can necessarily be sustained. Do we have any Brits in the room besides we got, we got Reese Laverty. Okay, we got. All right. All right, Reese, what were you doing 12 days ago? Uh, well, cel November the 5th. Oh, yeah, celebrating the death of Papus. Yeah, celebrating the death of Papus. Okay, so uh, all Brits uh, remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder, treason should ever be forgot, uh, even by us Americans, because I think it teaches us something important about the limits of religious liberty. All right, Guy Fox was a Catholic, a former Catholic uh, mercenary soldier who believed that it was his religious obligation to stash thousands of pounds of gunpowder underneath uh, the Houses of Parliament and blow up the king, the nobles, and all the leaders of the realm. And thankfully he was caught and, and executed before uh, he succeeded in carrying out the plot. Now should he have been able to claim religious liberty to carry out his plot? Obviously not. Uh, similarly, today, more contemporary example, the 9-11 uh, the bombers flew the planes into the World Trade Centers acting out their sincere religious convictions. So, not all sincere religious convictions deserve religious liberty protections. Now, someone immediately is going to say, now, well, yeah, of course you can't have religious liberty to harm others, right? As you religious liberty as long as you don't harm anybody else. Solves the, solves the problem, right? Well, does it? Um, should Christians no longer, should Christians not be allowed to spank their children because that's inflicting harm? That's a, you know, a generation ago, that would have been, that, everyone would have been like, that's ridiculous. You know, nowadays, it's probably the majority opinion is against it, but that highlights that there are plenty of Christians that think they have a religious obligation before God to use corporal punishment. 
our society today would say that's a form of inflicting harm. So you shouldn't have religious liberty to do that, should you? Um, what about conversion therapy for those struggling with homosexuality? Right? Uh, this has been a big debate, particularly I think, I think in Canada, I think it's actually banned as a form of psychological harm to, uh, to LGBT people to be put through this therapy. We cannot inflict psychological harm on others. And even it's gotten to the point where preaching the Bible, preaching the teaching of scripture against homosexuality is seen as an act of psychological violence, harmful, therefore, we don't let people blow up buildings in the name of religion. We don't let them blow up, we don't let them blow up gay people's feelings in the name of religion either, right? Now, so ultimately, there are going to be disagreements about what is actually harmful that are going to determine what we think the appropriate limits of religious liberty are. And those views about what is and isn't harmful are going to be religiously informed views. There is no religiously neutral ground for making determinations about what is harmful and shouldn't be permitted, and what is an innocent expression of religious liberty. Now, to go from the kind of um, terrifying, the profound, to the, to the ridiculous, uh, another, uh, there's a, a great book on this issue by uh, John Perry, who I recommend to everyone, called uh, Pretenses of Loyalty. And he talks about the case of a man who appeared in court wearing a chicken suit. And the judge held him in contempt of court, and the man protested that it was his, actually part of his personal religion to wear a chicken suit. And so he insisted that he had, he had the religious liberty to appear in court in this way. Right? Now, the response to that is, well, that's just ridiculous. You just made that up. That's not a real religion, right? But, I mean, what, what if he got, I don't know, what if he got a thousand people to join his chicken suit religion, right? Or uh, what if you had a, you know, a nudist colony that was held it as a matter of religious conviction, that, that clothing was sinful, all right? And then and they wanted to, actually, they weren't just happy to be a nudist colony. They insisted on parading around in public naked as a matter of religious conviction. Now, on those, we would say, well, again, that's, you just kind of made that up. That's not really a historic religious position. So we would apply some kind of criterion that an actual religious liberty claim requires some kind of uh, historical institutional expression. It can't just be, you know, some personal belief that you've come up with. Um, now... Even uh, one thing we, want, we might want to say about the chicken suit guy is, you know, again, you're just pretending. If, but if you really, what if he really genuinely held to this conviction? We don't believe it in that case. But even genuinely held religious convictions, as we've seen with the case of Guy Fawkes, uh, cannot be automatically accommodated. Now, we can look at cases in between these kind of extremes, the chicken suit and the guy who wants to blow up Parliament, all right? So... Uh, and, and there's all kinds of concrete issues that have troubled judges and juries through the centuries about is this the kind of sincerely held religious conviction that can be accommodated. Uh, for, for instance, um, Quakers, notoriously in 17th century Britain, they took very seriously what Jesus says about take no vows. So they, would, they refused to take any vows. Okay, so they couldn't, they couldn't testify in court because they, te they couldn't swear... Uh, they couldn't swear a vow. They couldn't um, occupy any civil office because they couldn't take an oath before God, swearing obedience to the king. So should their religious conviction against taking vows be accommodated? Should they be allowed to serve on juries even though they were unable to take vows? 
Over time, British society found ways to accommodate, found a way to kind of come up with something that was, from the British government standpoint, close enough to a vow, but from a Quaker standpoint, didn't count as a vow, right? But the point is, it took a lot of work to accommodate. There was a recognition that you had to balance the claims of religious liberty and the common good. Similarly, of course, Quakers uh, objected to military service. There have been various Anabaptist, radical Protestant groups over the centuries that have been pacifist. Now, in time of war, when the national survival is at stake, should that claim against war be sustained? Well, the part of the problem is, you might say, well, yes, if it is genuinely held, but, but if you just tell people, uh, hey, everyone has to join the military and fight in the front lines, unless you don't believe in war, and then you don't have to, right? Well, you know, what's going to happen? People are going to abuse that, right? John Perry's book is called The Pretenses of Loyalty, because this was John Locke's concern, that people would make a pretense of loyalty to God that gave them an excuse to not uh, loyally obey their authorities. Uh, in American history, of course, we know the story of Sergeant York, who was a pacifist who ultimately overcame his pacifist convictions and became a military hero. But for much of American history, uh, pacifism was not was was not accommodated. Right? It was a form that was seen as as, as draft dodging. Courts have tried to come up with tests for discerning uh, when a claim of a pacifist religious conviction is sincere and deeply rooted and when it is just a pretense. And I think there are ways in which we can accommodate these things. But the, again, the point is, it takes a lot of work and thought and prudence, and there's a need to balance religious liberty and the common good. A religious liberty claim cannot be automatically sustained. Um, and there's some cases in which I think a religious liberty claim couldn't be sustained, should not be sustained at all, right? Um, if you're a worshiper of Ishtar and believe that Ishtar needs to be honored with temple prostitution, you, you, you're free to believe that, fine. That's your, that's your view, but you can't practice that. You cannot act out your belief. Right? There's a distinction between freedom of belief and freedom of action. There has to be. And this becomes the more urgent, the more that we blur the lines, as modern society has, between religion and conscience. If any deeply held belief is to be treated as religious belief, then can any acting out any deeply held belief be protected as religious liberty? Um, of course, in the case Planned Parenthood, against, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, Anthony Kennedy famously defined liberty as the ability to define one's own concept of meaning, the meaning of human life, and the universe. That sounds like kind of an account of a religion. Your belief, your ultimate beliefs about the meaning of human life, those are religious convictions. And it's some people's ultimate belief about the meaning of life that they should be free and untrammeled to make their own decisions about their own bodies and uh, nothing, even the presence of a life in their womb, can get in the way of that. So should they be free to act out that deeply held, sincere conviction about the meaning of life? Should abortion be protected as a matter of religious liberty? Again, I think not. So I think as Christians, we have to recognize that we are constantly making religiously informed determinations about what actually counts as a legitimate exercise of religious liberty. There's not some neutral ground. So this gets to my second point, which is, that a one-sided emphasis on religious liberty blinds us to the inescapably moral and religious character of government. So, the point 
that I've been making above is not merely that every right may be subject to reasonable restrictions for life and society to be possible. No, light is un- no right is unlimited. That is a key point. But my point further is that no regime of religious liberty exists within a religious vacuum. It is only within a given religious framework, explicit or implicit, that we can actually make judgments about what religious exercise should be permitted. In fact, religious liberty law here in the United States has historically accommodated Jews and Muslims and Hindus by basically treating their synagogues and temples like churches and construing their practices and beliefs within the same mold as Protestant Christianity. Now note that I said above, make judgments about what religious exercise should be permitted. So what I'm really in favor of then is not religious liberty, but religious toleration. The word toleration has fallen on hard times lately. Nobody talks about toleration anymore. I mean, we're assigned to read Locke's essay on toleration as a great text on religious liberty, but he doesn't, he calls it toleration. Uh, We don't like to talk about toleration because to say I tolerate something signals at the same time that I think it's bad. It implies judgment. You bet it does, right? On a, a, we must always make judgments about what we think is right and wrong. And on a Christian ground, as a Christian, how could I ever believe that the religious liberty for an unbeliever to act out their unbelief, their false religion, how could I ever see that as anything more than a toleration of something that I consider bad? Indeed, as a Bible-believing Christian, I believe that my Mormon or Hindu neighbor is not merely dishonoring God, but they are harm, he is harming himself, his family, and by extension, the whole community. Right? If, if, if we believe that our belief in God is not just some personal matter in our hearts, but actually impacts our lives, if we believe that, that serving God makes us better human beings, then serving a false God is, brings suffering to me and everyone around me. So if it is to be allowed, it is allowed as a matter of toleration. There can be no moral right to do wrong. There might be a legal right, but if there's a legal right, there's a legal right to do something morally wrong, which we have all kinds of legal rights to do something morally wrong. Why do we? Well, it can be one of two reasons. First, we could say that the government does, just does not have the competence to restrain the evil in question. It recognizes it's evil, but there's nothing that it can do about it. It's just, uh, 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 it's impossible. Or we could say it might be possible to do something about it to restrain that evil, but the, the, that, that action will do more harm than good, right? The attempt to prevent one harm will end up doing more harm. Now, so that former constraint, the idea that government might not have the competence to restrain some evil, I think does apply to matters of false belief, all right? It is actually outside of the possibility for government to constrain somebody into believing the right things. Uh, Government cannot make windows into men's souls, to use Queen Elizabeth's language. The first, not the second. Uh, And it should not try. However, as soon as someone tries to act on a false belief, as I said above, if somebody tries to act out a commitment to temple prostitution or child sacrifice, then obviously government can get involved. So, if government can in principle get involved, we apply the second test, 
Will the attempt to restrain the false religion do more harm than good? Well, I think obviously it depends what we're talking about, right? If it's child sacrifice, I hope there's no one out there who's going to say, well, yes, child sacrifice is a very bad practice, but, you know, if the government's trying to coerce somebody not to act according to their conscience, that's just going to do more harm than good. And so we need to permit child sacrifice. I think everyone's going to agree that's a case in which the harm is so serious that it needs to be restrained. What about blasphemy, however? Does blasphemy fall into the category of a harm that is so great that uh, government should restrain it? Or is that the sort of thing that, yes, it's bad. Obviously, blasphemy is a bad thing, but if we attempted to crack down on blasphemy, that would do more harm than good. As in fact, or I, would, I should note, most U.S. states, for most of America's history, punished blasphemy. So maybe we shouldn't now, but if we shouldn't now, that's going to be a prudential judgment, not a principled judgment. It's going to be a question of weighing the relative harms of attempting to restrain some evil or tolerating some evil. And just because it might not be prudent now doesn't mean it can't have been prudent at some time in the past. So I want to say that in principle, my view is that in principle, government can certainly act to restrain the promulgation of falsehood, open idolatry, or other violations of the natural law masquerading as religious exercise. Now some will object, why should we give the government that power? Might it, it might be nice when you're in the majority, but what about when you're, when you're in the minority? You know, you, if, 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 what, what are you going to do with a majority Muslim nation? And you want, you want them to punish what they think is false religion? Of course not. So then you shouldn't do it either. This is the most common objection I get, right? Why would we give the government power to do something that we wouldn't want it to have if it was used against us? Uh, now, I think this argument breaks down. It's, it seems very persuasive to us as modern pluralist Americans, but as soon as you interrogate it, it doesn't make any sense. It's equivalent to saying, we really shouldn't give policemen guns at all because, you know, they could use them to shoot innocent people. Of course, this is what, I mean, <laughs> as if somebody would say that. Yeah, there are people saying that right now, right? Uh, defund the police because they might, they might abuse their power. Better off without police. Uh, or um, why should we give teachers the authority to tell their students what's true and what's false? They might tell them the wrong things. So we shouldn't let teachers have that authority at all, right? Uh, if the power is in fact legitimate, the mere possibility of its abuse cannot render it illegitimate. Uh, we might have good prudential arguments about how heavily armed our police force should or shouldn't be, but we shouldn't say, don't arm policemen because they might abuse that power. We might have good prudential arguments about how much religious orthodoxy government should enforce, but we shouldn't say government has no business in religion because it might promote the wrong religion. I would argue that law necessarily communicates truth claims. Law is always conveying some view of truth, of reality. These claims may be true or false, but the mere danger that law might adopt falsehoods in place of truths can never be a justification for denying law the authority to communicate truth. So then, what does an authentically, historically Protestant understanding of the common good look like? It's quite simple, really, and I'll lay it out in seven quick propositions. I can expound on any of these further later on, but I know I'm running out of time. So the first is, it's the task of government to punish evil and to praise or reward good. This is clearly expressed in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. Punish evil, reward the good. So what are good and evil? 
Proposition two, we know what good and evil look like from the natural law as it is restated and clarified by scripture. Traditionally, Protestants held that the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, functions as a shorthand summary of the natural law. So then it follows from one and two, government should punish evil, promote good. We know what good and evil are by the Decalogue. Therefore, proposition three, the task of government is to enforce justice as summed up in the Decalogue, which means the first and second tables of the Decalogue. All Ten Commandments are the responsibility of the government. Again, subjected, those are applied differently, subject to prudential constraints, but in principle. The fourth thing, though, is to make a two kingdoms distinction. Classic Protestant two kingdoms, not the version you hear a lot about nowadays, but the classic Protestant view said that government has jurisdiction only over the external temporal sphere. It doesn't have jurisdiction over matters of the heart. That's God's business. So it's true. People are going to say government can't make any, you can't make anyone a Christian by force. That's true. You have government absolutely cannot make people Christians. The fool may say in his heart, there is no God. Nobody can stop the fool from saying in his heart, there's no God. But if the fool starts running around the streets yelling that there is no God, that has crossed over from the spiritual kingdom into the temporal kingdom. And that's a different matter. And the fool, in that case, is striking at the very foundations of society. Now, the fifth proposition is just because government can punish something doesn't mean it should. Again, I made this distinction between principle and prudence. The war on drugs debate is a good example of this over the last 30, 40 years in America, it's been a lively debate about to what extent do we try to criminalize uh, harmful, addictive drugs? And some would say that the attempt to criminalize it has actually made the problem worse. Uh, and so if we find as a matter of practical politics that trying to stop some false religion actually helps the false religion, well then obviously we should tolerate it. However, Proposition 6 before we're too hasty to make that judgment, we should remember that even when law cannot stop something by force, it can still have a powerful pedagogical effect. I think many people have said, uh, well, you can't possibly crack down on all the illegal drugs that are coming come in, so you should just legalize drugs. And this is, of course, the, the legalization of marijuana, I know I'm here in Colorado, right, has fo that followed this logic. It does more harm, maybe marijuana is not great, but it's not worth trying to restrain it and so we should positively legalize it. What happens when you legalize it? You send a moral message to people saying, this thing is totally fine, right? And so, therefore, it, the usage spikes, right? It's not just, the, it's not just people, who, um, you know, it's people who are otherwise trying to get it before, now it's easier for them to get it. Now there's people who had no interest in marijuana before, but now that it's legal, they think of it in a different light. So even when the law cannot effectively restrain some practice, it can make sense for the law to nonetheless make some statement about it because that's a statement about what the community believes to be good. Uh, and so that really gets to my seventh and final point, which is government can promote as well as restrain. All right? I, when I talk about this stuff, people are worried, are you, you know, trying to, you, you want to lock up Baptists or something? Uh, do you want to stone the Muslims or something? No. But... Uh, just because we don't, we're not trying to violently coerce false religion doesn't mean that we cannot use government to positively promote right religion. This, is, this was the standard view of the American founders. So, I would argue that publicly affirming some orthodoxy um, is not 
equivalent to, it's, it's not a, that is not a violation of people's religious liberty. In fact, it's unavoidable. Every society must uh, publicly affirm some orthodoxy. And if we're not going to proclaim God in our laws and institutions, we shouldn't be surprised when our adversaries proclaim Dionysus there instead. Ultimately, then, this is what this is all about. Many will wonder what the point is of arguing for public Christian orthodoxy in a society that's never going to go for it. I can say more about this in the Q&A. But for now, let me attempt an Aristotelian answer. Every art aims at some end. And if we do not know the end, the purpose of politics, if we do not know what politics is for, then naturally we're going to be incompetent at it. You can't be good at any art that you don't know what the purpose of that art is. And this, I would submit, is part of why Christians in America today are so incompetent at politics, because we've forgotten the end of politics. So what is that end? Well, politics aims at living well together. And to live well, we must pursue virtue. And if we're going to pursue virtues, we must have a sense of the ordering of the virtues. And so we must have a sense not merely of what things are good, but what the highest good is. Every society, I would argue, will punish blasphemy against what it considers to be the highest good. A century ago, we punished people for publicly mocking an infinite creator God. Today, we punish people for publicly mocking the idea of an infinite self-creating man, a man able to turn himself into a woman. The left understands the end of politics, and this is why they are so good at playing the long game. The current state-imposed transgender insanity has been decades in the making. Conservative Christians, however, got it in their heads for decades that politics was simply about property rights and school vouchers. And now that we have wholly lost the public square, we frantically hide behind the protective sheet of religious liberty, now reconceived as a sphere of private self-expression. And we don't realize this protective sheet turns out to be a white flag. Thank you. Brad, thank you. Uh, Brad and I have had these conversations a number of times, and, and you know, brother, I agree with you on a number of things you said. You might be surprised how many things we do agree on, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful to discuss those, and as well as the points of disagreement. I'm going to try not to respond to make offer points of disagreement along the way, and just save those for the Q&A, as well as agreements. So I'm just going to go ahead and present what I said that would seem fair to you, rather than using my time to kind of litigate what you said. Um, Get out my timer. And uh, in the spirit of unity, I, I, I'm grateful for our partnership in the gospel. That's the most important thing, even as we adjudicate some of these second-order issues. And I, I think it's important we do that, but I am very grateful for you and your friendship, as, as well as any of you who might disagree with me along the way. Right? My, my ostensible purpose for standing here is to present a defense for religious liberty. I've been invited as the Baptist, after all, and if, if you've never attended a Baptist church, you should know that in our children's Sunday school classes, this is basically the only thing we teach them about, is religious 
liberty. The Presbyterians are teaching their children about God's glorious covenants. And the Lutherans are talking about the law and the gospel. And the Methodists are talking about uh, sanctification and piety. We talk about, you know, religious liberty. In our, that's our contribution. Uh, of course, a number of Christians wonder if religious liberty is really the best doctrine to be teaching in this morally chaotic and I would say, frankly, neo-pagan age. And in fact, couldn't it be that this Baptist emphasis is really just classical liberalism talking because we've been co-opted and that it's led to the rampant individualism and anti-authorityism that's participated in creating our present moral chaos. And honestly, I think there's some of which that's true, and that's a good question of ask, and, and even questions of define it according to conscience. I, this is where I would agree, agree with my brother. But to think through it more carefully, I don't want to. I'm going to do something a little different tonight. I'm not going to come at it just as a, as a theologian or a theoretician. I, I, I have a number of works. I could, we could, I could point to those. Maybe I'll do that more in the Q&A. I actually want to approach this more of a, as a pastor because I think there's a number of pastoral concerns that are animating this conversation. And therefore, I'm going to do, this might flop, this might not work for this form, but I'm going to try it anyway. This is going to be a little bit more sermonic, and we'll just see how that goes. Uh, recently, I had breakfast with a, a friend who has an 18-year-old nephew. Let me call him Sam. And he committed suicide a, a few months back. And Sam, who struggled with mental health issues, lost his way. Yet my friend also, as he was dis uh, describing this to me, talked about the, the larger world of TikTok and deconstruction and questions about gender and the whole culture telling Sam that he was free to be whoever he wanted to be is kind of the backdrop to this terrible act of suicide. And Sam simply lacked the structures and the moorings and the fixed points of moral evaluation to, to answer the question, well, who am I? Culture had just sort of left him adrift. He couldn't get a grip and eventually he took his life. And friends, this should make you angry. It really should. Angry at all those cultural forces which have set themselves to destroying the good, the true, the beautiful, the godly, right? And destroying 18-year-olds like Sam. Others, you know, turn to drugs. Others to shopping or body cult or a hundred other distractions that leading us into meaningless, futile lives. There's nothing left to live for. And, and my friend's story really hit home for me because I have a 21-year-old nephew who's trying to find his way and his 17-year-old sister and my own, my own, I have four daughters and the oldest are 16 and 15 and 13 and they're trying to figure things out as well. And now they've grown up in a home attending church weekly with uh, family worship and parental discipleship and grandparents who pray for them. Yet, what do my daughters and my niece and nephew need as they leave homes which have been shaped by the truths of Christianity? They might not follow him. What do they need? Well, most of all, they need Jesus. That's what they need. They need Jesus. And so my wife and, my, my wife and I, of course, work towards that end, but at some point we... We let them go, and they're on their own, right? L let me refine the question. Then. What do my teenage and 20-something, my teenage daughters and 20-something niece and nephews need from society's larger structures like church and state so that they might know Jesus? And friends, I'm setting the conversation up this way because I think it puts us in the right framework. 
Christians should approach every action, every structure, and decision life asking the question, how will this help me, my family, my friends, my non-Christian neighbors, my, my church better know Jesus? What, what, what's the end of the art, the Aristotelian answer? Well, it's to know Jesus, right? That, that's got to be the, the goal of everything we do as Christians. So it should be our driving question in this conversation and, and questions of state and, and church. Tragically, Sam's story is over. But there are millions more Sam's launching into the world. What do my niece and nephew and your nieces and nephew and, and your sons and daughters as they, they go into the world, what do they most need? Seven things, all right? Need or not need. Need or not need. Seven things. Number one, they don't need to be treated like children any longer, but like adults. And a state which seeks to implement the first table of the law treats them like children. It forces or attempts to force. I'll do that with my kids. Why, why should I have the state? The magisterial reformers may have believed that the magistrate's jurisdiction quote, extends to both tables of the law, as Brad just said, and to protecting true worship because, quote, no polity can successfully be established unless piety be its first care. So argued John Calvin by appealing to the Davidic kings. And in one sense, he's right, right? People will not truly love their neighbors and refrain from murder, stealing, lying, and sexual deviancy if they don't first love God by keeping the first commandment about no other gods and the second commandment about not worshiping idols. The second table does depend upon the first table. Love of neighbor does depend upon love of God. So we should criminalize or somehow implement violations of the first table, said the magisterial reformers. And I want to say, really? Just because that's true descriptively, does that mean we have the right that God has authorized the government to prosecute the first table of the law? Did that work for Israel? How did it go for them? What's the lesson of Israel's failure and exile? I mean, it would seem you could have God's law written on tablets of stone, God's own hand-selected kings and queens and priests, God's own presence in the temple, and yet still they worship other gods and sacrifice their children to idols. If laws against blasphemy didn't work for them, why do we think it would work for us? And not only that, have I, have you, criminalized violations of the first and second commandment in your home? Do you treat your children like that? Uh, do, do, is it, do, do, do I think that launching them, my, 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 my daughters and my nephews, and launching them into society, trying to figure out if they're going to be Christians or not, do I think they need, do I think it will help them to choose Jesus by making them second-class citizens? Will that help them know Christ? Do I assume they will respond well to that? Okay, dad's never penalized you for not trusting Jesus, but the, if the state does, that'll help. Magisterial Protestantism and various forms of theonomy and certain varieties of Christian nationalism sometimes draw an analogy to the 
so-called Christian family. They argue that in the same way so-called Christian parents establish structures and rules and practices that are conducive to Christian belief, so can the state. Yet in so doing, I'm saying they're treating citizens like children. They infantilize them. And the concern here is not, oh, that's insulting. Like, how dare you treat us like children? That's not my, that's not my point. The concern is adults aren't children. They don't respond like children, not wired like children, particularly children living in the home of their parents. Recall how Jesus said we need the faith of a child. As such, we should not expect such structures conducive to belief, as it's described, whatever those are, to work for adults like they do children. And it seems they don't really work for children either, says the lesson of the new covenant. God has no grandchildren brings me to a second point. Number two, our sons and daughters launching into the world don't need false gods and false Christianities established in the public square. So I'm going to fall prey a bit here to his critique. Let me just go ahead and spring the trap and fall prey to it. For every time you manage to get hold of the sword to prosecute your religion or your sect, seven others will come along and get a hold of it to prosecute theirs against yours. Isaac Bacchus commented, the same sword that Constantine drew against the heretics, Julian turned against the Orthodox. One question those who call for the legal implementation of first table matters never answer is, how can you guarantee it's your God or your version of Christianity and not say Joe Biden's Christianity, which is being established? And here's where the whole comparison to the so-called Christian family really breaks down. What's the starting point for what we call a Christian family? Well, it's Christian parents. Great. Right? Christian parents should implement Christian structures and expectations. Yet then folks quickly make the analogy that the government should do what the Christian parents do. Okay, but with Christian parents, you are by definition starting with Christian parents. With government, you're not. So how can you assume that's going to happen? How can you guarantee it? Not only that, the Bible assigns parents with the broadest authority of any authority on earth. It's effectively totalitarian, extending from learning to teach them to, to wipe their bottoms to instructing them on who and what and how to worship. It is a broad authority indeed, right? Do I really want to hand that same broad totalitarian authority to the government? Well, if I'm in Russia, it's going to be Orthodox Christianity. If, if I'm in Italy, it's going to be Roman Catholic Christianity. Do, do, do you want that? I, I don't want any of these things for my daughters or my nephew in order for them to know Jesus. Do, nor do I want the government treating them with the same authority as my own. Part of treating them like adults and not like children or, race, or risking the establishing of false God brings us to number three. Number three, they need the freedom to make their own decisions about who God is and whether or not they will follow Jesus. So again, I want you to get into your head some non-Christian family member or friend that you know. Can you really imagine trying to influence that friend or that family member toward Christianity with any kind of threat of the sword? Any type of penalty, any type of tax, any type of second-class citizenship. Can you imagine saying to that non-Christian you're thinking of, we're going to fine you for not loving Jesus like we think you should. 
and living according to that. Do you think that will work? And if so, I question your understanding of psychology, not to mention the Holy Spirit, the new birth, and conversion. Uh, Do you do even that with your kids now, in your home? Is it law that Paul says will bring us to repentance? Is it not the kindness and grace of God? The kingdom of God will not be advanced by the sword. The kingdom of God will not be advanced by the sword. Peter wanted to pick it up in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is like, no, we're not doing it that way. That's not how this thing is going to happen. That's not how the kingdom will extend to the earth. You cannot point me to a single verse in the New Testament. There is not the slightest whiff in the New Testament that we advance the kingdom of God by the sword. Nothing. Isaac Bacchus again. Our glorious head, Jesus, made no use of secular force in the first setting up of the gospel church. So Jesus and the apostles didn't need the sword to set up churches, Why? which are the, which are the pathway to true righteousness and justice and love of neighbor. Why, why do we need them? Uh, to put this point in another way, enforcing the first table operates by kingdom of man logic, triumph through power, rather than kingdom of God logic, triumph through weakness. What do our teenagers launching into the world and our non-Christian friends, what does the church itself need to learn about Jesus? Well, that in his first coming, he foregrounded the priestly work of weakness and sacrifice. He does not foreground his work of kingly triumph until his second coming. That's, that's one of the things that changed from the old covenant to the new. Isaiah teaches that the Davidic king who established the kingdom of Israel in strength would turn out to be the suffering servant who established the kingdom of God in weakness. And yet now, for some reason, people are wondering, well, maybe we should do it like Israel did it. Didn't we do, did we miss about how Jesus would say he would build his kingdom by taking up our crosses and following him? Didn't he say that? If our children need to be free to accept God on their own, they also need to be free to reject him and tragically choose some other God. Number four, they need to be Respected and honored as God imagers. When my children leave the home, if they choose to abandon Christ, they still need to be respected and honored as equal God imagers. And I'd point you to Genesis 5, 9, and 6, or 9, 5, and 6, and many other passages to prove the point, and I'll come to that one in a bit. And again, friends, I, I don't want to have a theoretical conversation here. I want you to think about my daughters, my 21-year-old nephew, and I I want you to think about your non-Christian friends, family members. I want want them in your head. Don't you want the government and their employers and the world around these people that you love to honor and respect them as equal God imagers together with all of your Christian friends? 
Don't you want them to know that you're advocating for that? Or do you want them to hear you're advocating for taking away some of their political advantages or rights? That you're trying to put yourself above them politically because you're privileging your God in a particular way. Do you think that will help them to want to know Jesus? And part of treating them as equal God images brings me to my fifth point. Number five, they need a government that will protect them and provide all the necessary conditions for them to live fruitful human lives, fulfilling God's given Genesis 1.28 mandate. Now, if they're not Christians, they will not like such biblical language. That's fine. But they'll appreciate some of what you are going to try to provide for them in the public square nonetheless. Think of Genesis 9.1. Let's go there. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's your dominion mandate. That's for your Christian friends and for your non-Christian friends. They're commanded to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, subdue the earth, fulfilling and having dominion. Right? Um, And God repeats the command in in verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply on the earth. That's what the paragraph, paragraph is about. Verse 1, verse 7. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That's tough to do when the Cains are killing the Abels, turns out, after the fall, right? So what do we do? How do we facilitate that? Well, verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning from the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Governments would have existed in a fallen world if nothing else to tell us which side of the road to drive on, but this text authorizes human beings to exercise coercive force on one another for the express purpose of preserving life. This, these texts are the basic covenantal authorization for all that governments do, much like Matthew 16, 18, and 28 for churches. Might, might even call it the Great Commission text. Now, the Bible says more about governance. We need to fill it out with more, but that, that's the beginning. That's the charter. That's what legitimates coercive force over other human beings. Just because somebody's breaking God's law doesn't mean you have the authority to to coerce them in some sense. You need to be given that authority to exercise coercive force. Where do we find that? Well, in this covenantal text. So, So why does God give human beings the right to exercise coercive authority? Most expressly, to protect human life. And this would seem to include not just punishing murder, but any kind of concrete quantifiable harm, as well as working within reason to prevent it. Yet we must also recall that verses 5 and 6, as I said, work to facilitate verses 1 and 7. That's the purpose of government, to facilitate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, right? Uh, What that means is God authorizes governments to secure the basic conditions necessary for fulfilling the dominion Mandate. Insofar as the dominion mandate begins with be fruitful and multiply, governments must seek to protect the basic structures of marriage and the family. They have no right from God to redefine marriage as, as the U.S. Senate is in the process of right now, or attempting to. Right? They, they, they can't actually do it. Because such redefinitions invariably work to hinder the work of fruitfulness and dominion. Furthermore, one might envision a host of other factors that hinder the work of fruitfulness, dominion, and the basic God-giving, God-imaging political equality required for fruitfulness and dominion. Entrenched cycles of poverty. 
for instance, would hinder such work and puts dominion at stake for certain citizens. That, that doesn't mean the government must ensure every citizen possesses the same economic starting point. It does suggest that a basic economic safety net may serve the purposes of dominion, enough to stay alive and, and be fed and get to work in the morning. So Proverbs 29, 14 says, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established. That said, Governments can become unjust by overtaxing their populations. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts or taxes heavily tears it down. Proverbs 29.4. So their job is not to fulfill the dominion mandate, but to facilitate it, to be a platform, not the performer. Too much taxation, to be sure, hinders the performers. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we, we encounter precisely the same limited jurisdictional mandate given to governments. Secure the necessary conditions for fulfilling the dominion mandate. Jesus famously declares, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. To be sure, everything that belongs to Caesar also belongs to God, but not everything that belongs to God belongs to Caesar. He's got a limited jurisdiction. We can talk about that more later with, with Brad. Romans 13, Paul declares that God has instituted governments to reward the good and punish the bad. Does this mean governments must punish every conceivable bad and reward every conceivable good? Well, if, if, if they want to play God on Judgment Day, yeah. You give them a totalitary, all, all goods, all bads. Well, obviously not. It's a subset of goods. It's a subset of bads. Well, what's the subset? Well, Brad would say... Natural law, Ten Commandments. Well, let's just, let's just stay in Romans 13. What does it say? Well, uh, notice how it ends. Give to everyone what you owe them. And then verse 8 continues the same idea. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. It. And any other commandment, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul could have said the law is filled up in the love of God and love of neighbor. That would have been theologically accurate, obviously, but he doesn't say that here because interest here is in the love that we owe each other. Not the love we owe God, but the love we owe each other. And to reinforce the point, he cites the second table of the law. What are the goods and bads the government is to enforce? Second table, love of neighbor, rooted goods and bads. That's what Paul is telling us in Romans 13. The lesson, I think, is pretty clear. What do I want for my daughters and your sons launching into the world? A government that will protect them and treat them as equals according to God's rules of righteousness. Not to pick any form of righteousness there. No, no, no. Within that jurisdiction... It's God's rules of righteousness. I just don't need the government going outside of that jurisdiction. First table. He doesn't give that to them. I hire a babysitter. Brad's heard me say that. I hire a babysitter. I said, put the kids, kids in bed at 8, feed them dinner, don't let them play in the streets. I'm not telling her to spank my kids. I'm not telling her to teach them who God is. No, just do those three things. Now, she, within her jurisdiction, needs to do what I'm asking her to do. I'd like her to acknowledge me, too. But she's not to go outside the jurisdiction I've given her. You see, what is religious freedom? Religious freedom is anything outside of that jurisdiction. That's what it is. 
So I'm not starting with the conscience. I'm starting with the jurisdiction God gives to government and does not give to government. Number six, my children, your children, as they go into the world, need a government that will provide a platform for the work of the church. Genesis 9 comes before Genesis 12 and the call to Abraham, the inauguration of the uh, plan of redemption for a reason. Government provides a stage on which God's redemptive drama can play out. Paul therefore observes in Acts 17 that God determines the borders of nations and the dates of their duration so that people might perhaps, it says, find their way to him. So they're serving that end, ultimately. People need to be able to walk to church without getting mauled by marauders. They need to be able to, they can't get saved if they're dead. The work of government, in short, provides a platform for the work of the saints. So in and of themselves, they play a preservative role, but they exist to serve the larger purposes of redemption so that people would know Jesus. That's the end. That's the ultimate. But they're like the guardrails on the mountain road. Their proximate purpose is just to keep cars on the road. The ultimate purpose of those guardrails is that people get to another city. But they're not the car. They're not getting people to the city. They're just keeping them on the road. You see? We do not want a government that it thinks it can offer redemption, but a government that views its work as a prerequisite to redemption for all of its citizens. It builds the streets so that you can drive to church. It protects the wombs so that you can live and hear the gospel. It insists on fair lending and housing practices so that you can own a home and offer hospitality to non-Christians. It works for education so you can teach your children to read the Bible. It protects marriage and the family, not by redefining marriage, but by kicking strip clubs out of the city and upholding marriage, maybe even giving it tax breaks so that husbands and wives can better model Christ's love for the church. It polices the streets so that you are free to assemble as churches unmolested and to make an honest living so that you can give money to the work of God. That's who you should vote for. You should vote for the candidates who do those things. Notice then that the two basic kinds of government show up in the Bible, those that shelter God's people and those that destroy God's people. Avimelech sheltered, Pharaoh destroyed, the Assyrians destroyed, the Babylonians and Persians ultimately sheltered, Pilate destroyed, Festus sheltered. And depending on how you read the book of Revelation, the history of government will culminate in a beastly slaughter of saints' blood. Romans 13 calls the government servants, Psalm 2 calls them imposters. Most governments contain both, but some are better than others, and Christians have interest in the better ones. Jesus will build his church. No, the worst governments cannot stop the Holy Spirit. Yes, God often moves underground, undisclosed to governments, but bad governments, from a human standpoint, really do make the church's work difficult. Christians should work for good governments that serve that ultimate end. How do we do that? Well, number one, we, we pray. Paul urges us to pray for kings and all in high positions so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. That's what the king is going to do. Give us a platform, a peaceful and quiet lives. Why? Because God wants all people to come to salvation. We pray for the government so that the saints might live peaceful and quiet lives and people will get saved. 
Number two, we engage. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's by paying taxes, yes, but in a democratic context, we do this by voting, lobbying, lawyering, running for office. Even in empire, Paul, for the sake of the gospel, pulled the political levers he had by appealing to his citizenship and appealing to Caesar. Steward the opportunities while we have them. Number three, I think we're to acknowledge God in the public square, at least as Christian individuals. We should warn politicians who do injustice. I appreciated John MacArthur challenging Governor Newsom over misusing the Bible to justify abortions. He, he, he warned him. That was exactly right. Christians working in government, too, should be willing when it serves good purposes to point to God. Psalm 2, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Now, I'm not going to compel my fellow senators, if I'm a senator, by the sword to acknowledge the son. No, the punishment is left for the son. Kiss the son lest he be angry. What I'm less convinced does anything in placing such acknowledgments into our public documents is, is placing such acknowledgment into our public documents any more than I would place Jesus' names into my mortgage papers with a, with a non-Christian banker. In, in defense of Christian nationalism, a Canadian academic um, looking at the moral chaos of Canada right now, recently wrote, all I want is the freedom to worship according to my conscience with a society that recognizes, as the preamble to the Canadian Charter of Freedom puts it, principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. It's an interesting paragraph. I looked up the Canadian Charter of Freedom, which is the Bill of Rights passed in 1982, it's inside the Canadian Constitution. It really does call for principles that recognize the supremacy of God. Well, so then my, front, my, my response to, to the author is, well, sounds like you got what you want. Is it working? How's it going for you? Think back to my friend's son, Sam, or, 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 or my daughter's launching into the world. Is that, is that what they really need in the Constitution? Is that, is that going to make the difference? Most of all, number seven, they need Healthy churches that point them to Jesus and Jesus' people. They need churches that preach the gospel and make the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news. Not that Jesus picked up the sword, but that he submitted his own neck to the sword of Rome. And the wrath of God, paying the penalty we deserve, rose from the grave, showing that he defeated the world, the flesh, the devil, so that all who turn from their sins and follow him will live and begin to walk in justice and righteousness. Our churches and neighbors need churches filled with members who are building their lives on this message and who are living distinct from the world like salt. They need churches that lived a, uh, as a transformed nation before they try to transform the nation, that live as a redeemed culture before they try to redeem the culture. Churches are the light on the hill, not the nation. Right? Our, our sons and the daughters launching into the world don't need Joe Biden or Donald Trump saying, this is right doctrine, this is wrong doctrine. These are true members, these are not true members. That is the church's job, right? And when somebody lives contrary to that, we exercise great care on whom Jesus places his name. We excommunicate the man who's living contrary to that gospel because we know our witness depends upon the integrity of Jesus' name. What do my daughters and sons need as they launch out into the world? Well, they need a free state and a free church, as Baptists have commonly said, qualifying that a state that 
is governed by the principles of righteousness within God's limited jurisdiction. Last, last comment. So there you are sending your 18-year-old or 21-year-old daughter out into the world, and now imagine they're decisively turned away from Jesus. Just picture that. And you think back to that tender prayer you heard from them at age six, and you think of them leading that Bible study in high school, and you have a video of it. And my goodness, you want that back. And you're longing for that younger child who seemed to love Jesus and his word. But now they're rejecting him. They're even despising him. And they're chastising you for what you believe. What do you do? You don't insist. You don't legislate with the power of the sword. At some level, you have to let go. You have to leave it to the Lord. You pray. You stand up for righteousness within your domain. No, I will not attend your same-sex wedding, but I do love you. If you can't make your car payment, I will help. I'll attend to your physical needs as much as I can and, and welcome your non-Christian children into my home and share the gospel with them, and then you wait. The Lord will have his way. Now, if this is what you do with your grown children who don't love Jesus, why would you do something more forceful with those who are not your kids? Do you assume it will go better with them? Thank you for extending my time. Is this on? Good. All right. Cool. Um, all right. Thanks so much, Jonathan. All right. So, um, 10 minutes to respond to all that. Uh, so, let me just summarize a few things, hit some high points. So, uh, it struck me that you made um, two very distinct lines of argument uh, one principled, the other prudential. Um, it strikes me that the, the, your whole account, of, your whole example of the, the way the parent relates to the child and the danger of infantilizing is a prudential argument. It is saying uh, attempting to bring about right behavior uh, by too much force is going to backfire. Right? So that's right, right behavior and right belief. Right. Okay. So um, I'm going to come to that. I'm going to come to that. Let's talk first about the principal point. Because the prudential point. I can agree on principle about the prudential point. You may just disagree about the prudence of it. Sure. So um, the, the principle point you, you make, I think is a, your key claim is, which you made uh, at the ETS event a couple days ago, is about the dominion mandate. You say government is not authorized, is not authorized to enforce the first table of the law because the task of government is simply to uh, enforce the conditions necessary for carrying out the dominion mandate. Now, at one point, you briefly, you, you first gave a kind of very narrow definition of what that meant. You said uh, this means uh, using force to preserve life, so it would seem like only the Sixth Commandment. And then, one, then you said something much broader. You said it could include punishing any concrete quantifiable harm, um, which I would say, if you're going to say that, then that encompasses all the things that I want to talk about. Uh, but in any case, um, broadly speaking, it seems to me what you want to say is uh, 
commandments 6 through 9, 5 through 9 maybe, uh, can be enforced by the government and otherwise they're not authorized to. So my objection here, which I raised the other day, is it seems to me that one of the most important conditions for carrying, for carrying out any mandate is recognizing the identity of the mandator, right? You run an institution, you, have, you might have uh, a key delegated staff, uh, staff member, uh, member underneath you who's then supervising a whole bunch of other staff to carry out the mission of Nine Marks, right? Uh, if those other employees of Nine Marks start saying, oh no, I don't work for Nine Marks, I work for myself. Oh, Jonathan Lehman isn't in charge. I mean, I'm in charge of myself. Uh, then the person that you have delegated to oversee them, presumably part of their job is to say, uh, yeah, you do work for Nine Marks, and if you don't, if you're not okay with that, you're out of here. We're fired. You're fired, yeah. So I think um, the point there is if government is tasked with ensuring the conditions necessary for the fulfillment of a God-given mandate, then it would seem that a society, that that means reminding society by some appropriate means, and we can talk about what level of force is helpful or not, but reminding society by some appropriate means that that mandate comes from God and that the government holds authority from God. To use your example of the babysitter, uh, you give your babysitter a defined, you say you're, you're responsible for you know, enforcing this, not for, you know, it, making my child perfect in every way over the next three hours, right? Uh, so, when you say, okay, one of the things, make sure the kids don't jump on the furniture, right? Now, the kid, what do the kids start jumping on the furniture? Which is likely they will do that, especially if they heard you telling the babysitter not to let them do that, right? Uh, then, there, you, and the babysitter tries to restrain them, and you, and then the kids say to the babysitter, I don't have to listen to you. And the babysitter says, yes, you do, because your parents gave me this task, Right? So um, the babysitter has to appeal in the exercise of their office to the authority of the mandator. Uh, and if the children are denying that, that is the babysitter's business. And then there could be things that come, you know, the, the, the child might, there might be things the parents didn't mention. Child starts doing something, and the babysitter should say, is that, is that something your parents would, would want you to do? I don't, I don't think your parents would want you to do that, right? So I think even there with a... Uh, they have a delineated task, and yet constantly in carrying out the delineated task, they have to appeal back explicitly to the ground of their authority. So, translating that into our debate, right, it seems to me that um, even to carry out the very limited tasks that you want government to do, um, something like what we mentioned with the, that you mentioned near the end of the 1982 Canadian Bill of Rights, is necessary, that government must acknowledge the source of its authority, acknowledge God, and say because, because God put us in power, because God has built, has established these moral norms that we're trying to enforce, that is why we are establishing these rules about life, establishing these rules about marriage, etc. Uh, it seems to me that even even in enforcing second table issues, it's not clear to me how a government is supposed to enforce a Christian vision of the second table uh, in a way that just sort of pretends that this is, oh yeah, everybody thinks this. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned they should drive, you know, ban strip clubs as a matter of enforcing the seventh commandment. Are most non-Christians going to agree that that is a correct use of the power of government? I don't think so. I think only a relatively Christian citizenry uh, 
with Christian rulers is going to see banning strip clubs as, an, as a legitimate function of government. So government has to acknowledge its theological foundations even to carry out its temporal tasks. That's, that's my, my first argument. Now let me turn to the kind of... Okay. I, how am I going to keep track of all of these things oh. to respond? Do you have? You can I guess I notebook. should. Okay. Does anybody have a notepad for Jonathan? So let's turn to the kind of prudential point, the, and I, I'm really, uh, I think I'm glad you made this point about. <laughs> trying to help me there. Anyway. Um, Glad you made this point about the authority of parents and children. Now, um, first thing to say, you you, you said uh, parents have a sort of totalitarian, legitimately totalitarian authority uh, that government doesn't have. Now, um, I mean, of course, no one wants to, you know, claim the word totalitarian, but in the uh, the standard reformed, standard historic Protestant teaching is actually to draw a very close analogy between parental authority and civil authority. The fifth commandment is taken to include the obligation to obey rulers because rulers are seen as the fathers of the people, right? So uh, I, I just, just to highlight your position there and drawing a strong disanalogy between parental and civil authority is, uh, is I think, out of step with the, the tradition. Now, Amen. Okay. All right. So um, at one point you said, and you said, I don't, as a parent, I don't try to enforce violations of the first, or restrained violations of the first table in my home. It seemed like you said that. Which then it seemed like you contradicted that at other points. And it would seem to me that you do. Uh, you tell your children to go, to go to church with you on Sunday. Uh, if your children are going around blaspheming God's name, you punish them for that, I would presume. Right? So, um, uh, it seems to me that in the, in the household, we in fact do. We might punish in different ways. You know, there's, you always have to ask, what is the most effective means of punishing some misbehavior? Uh, and sometimes, sometimes you, 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 you very forcefully punish something. Sometimes you merely express disapproval. You take away certain privileges. Uh, sometimes you try to, you, instead of focusing on punishing the bad behavior, you incentivize good behavior. And I would say that the action of government lies along that whole spectrum as well. You constantly want to talk about, uh, you know, the government shouldn't be criminalizing this. It shouldn't be forcing people to do something by the sword. I'd say this is oversimplifying the picture. Government has a whole toolkit that runs this whole spectrum, but from on the one end of the spectrum, you know, capital punishment for doing, for doing something evil. Uh, then it could be you know, a fine. Uh, it could be the withdrawal of some uh, privilege. It could be simply having a law on the books that's not enforced. But as I said, the mere presence of the law on the books sort of is a public signal this is a bad thing. Or you could have a law on the books the other direction, sort of publicly affirming the opposite, saying we think this is a good thing. Or you could have uh, a positive incentivization for the good thing. Like there's, there's, there's tax breaks for, you know, we're, gonna, we're disincentivizing divorce and we're going to offer tax breaks for faithful marriage, right? Uh, or at the far end of the spectrum, you can have government positively mandating something. This is something you must do. So law functions in this whole spectrum from absolute coercion against to absolute coercion in favor and then all sorts of ways of incentivizing and disincentivizing in between. I got there. Ah, 30 seconds. Okay. Um, all right. So let me just say briefly. So um, your point about you don't want to infantilize. I would say absolutely um, that, that you, you have to say, uh, you have to, 
recognize that the use of authority has to be calibrated to, um, you know, am I dealing with a child or am I dealing with a mature adult? But I would say that civil society, some civil societies are more childish. Some civil societies have matured more and are more adult. And I would say the reason, part of the reason that we have more religious liberty today and religious liberty has evolved over the centuries is not because we were stupid and benighted before and now we've seen the light. It's because we're the beneficiaries of living in uh, civil societies that have been well-parented, well-parented over the centuries. And by being well-parented, they became more mature and more self-governing. And as they become more mature and self-governing, government rules them with a lighter and lighter hand. Um, but that's not inevitable. Uh, society can sort of revert to childishness. And if it does, uh, government may have to use a firmer hand in restraining it. Just a few, a few points of a few points of agreement. Uh, defining it on uh, rights of conscience has left the door open, wide open to relativism. I agree, and it seems to apply to any deeply held belief. I agree. That's why I don't start. I want to protect the conscience, but but not by building on the conscience, but by starting with jurisdictional assignments and what God has or has not in the Bible, not natural law, in the Bible, authorized or not. Authorized. I'll come back to that in a minute. But nonetheless, I, I agree. And I, I think there has been a kind of co-opting. Number two, you, you said a, a one-sided emphasis blinds us to the moral and religious character of government. Sorry, thank you. And I, again, I, I, I agree. I, I think everything you do in the public square is, as it were, religious, right? I wrote a book called Political Church. And I've, I've argued that the, the public square is a battleground of gods. Everything a, a government does is moral. And behind that, morality is a worldview, or a religion. So I agree with you entirely. I still want to talk about a limited jurisdiction. Just because the babysitter's obeying me doesn't mean she'd obey me in everything or do everything I do, right? Um, yeah, your, your point about valorizing expansive religious rights, we encourage the very chronological scenario it's destroying the church. Uh, uh, that's where you're appealing to history, and I'm just going to say, yeah, a lot of people in history agree with you. I think a lot of people in history agree with me. That's not finally what's determinative for us. Uh, many of your examples in your first point, then, uh, were building on the conscience, and I, I, I do think that's problematic. Uh, so I, I kind of agree with you, and Anthony Kennedy is a perfect illustration of that problem. Um, uh, you, you did say at one point there can be no moral right to do wrong. Not before God, that's true. Before God, I don't have a moral right to do wrong. But that doesn't mean I have the right to stop you. It's a different, that's alighting two things. Um, you talked about, let's say, criminalizing blasphemy. Well, what's the criteria for that? You need some criteria. You say, well, it is actionable. Well, what may, okay, even then, what, what starting a riot? Okay, well, I would agree. But then you're relying 
not on the blasphemy, you're relying on the riot because the riot's causing harm. In other words, I don't care if a person gets up and says, Jesus is Lord and starts a riot, or Satan is Lord and starts a riot, or green beans are green and starts a riot. The point is the riot is what makes that actionable. Do you see? And there you're kind of, I think, relying on something closer to the criteria I would offer, which are these. I don't know why you would then start with criminalizing blasphemy. At least, it's not clear to me what your criteria are there. Um, let, me, let, me, let me go to, to the things you just, how much time do I have left? Seven minutes. Seven, okay. I might not use my full ten. Uh, you need to acknowledge the rule maker. The, the babysitter needs to say, your parents said. I agree. I kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. But that's my accountability to God. If you and I are fellow babysitters, and I'm saying, but, but the, the parents said we can do this or we can't do that, and you're my fellow babysitter, and you're like, I don't even remember what they said. They, they weren't clear. And they're idiots anyway. I'd be like, but, but no, Brad, they said. I can't. I don't have the authority then to make you, to fire you. Well, then you're not a babysitter. You're out of here. You know, I, 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 I don't have the authority to, to force you to acknowledge mom and dad. Now, mom and dad will eventually come home and hold you and me accountable both. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but in that moment, I, I, I can't force you to do anything. So we are in a situation where God authorizes or would call us to, to say, and may God bless America, and, and, and here I am as a sinner. You, you should do this because the Bible says. I'll say that in the public square, but as I said, I can't make my fellow senators say that. I don't think I have the authority to do that. Uh, and again, I just want to appeal to the Bible and not natural law. I, just, I do not see a single whiff in the Bible where you see prosecution, other than in Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, outside of the law he gave to them, which was a totalitarian state. I don't see any authorization of the Bible given to the nations or to Caesar or to Nebuchadnezzar or anyone that authorizes prosecution of the first. There's one exception, Nebuchadnezzar. Tear off the arms of anybody who, you know, worships a God other than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the one exception. I take that to be descriptive. I don't take that to be normative. We should actually tear people's arms off. Maybe you do. I don't if they don't acknowledge the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Other than that, government has a limited jurisdiction. They're not authorized to do otherwise. I, I think it's just too, it's clean. It makes logical sense to say, well, natural law, natural laws and the Ten Commandments, we enforce the Ten Commandments. It's like, okay, that's a theologically tidy argument. I get it. It just is not reflect. You're having to smother, ignore, overlook the rest of the, the text. Israel was totalitarian. So is the church. Be perfect as I am perfect, says the Lord. That's what Israel was to implement with the sword. That's what the church is to implement. Uh, Israel was to put to death blasphemers. In the New Testament, what happens to blasphemers? they get executed. It changes. It, there's a shift. Not everything that belongs to God belongs to Caesar. Uh, the, it didn't work. 
why do we think it would work today? So again, I just I want to insist on when we just slap natural law down. I, I clearly think natural law is real. I think it's, but it needs scripture to clarify it, right? And when we just say, oh, natural law, it becomes a label for justifying just about anything we want. It becomes totalitarian. It becomes tyrannical. It becomes the Inquisition. If, if you're going to justify use of the sword in your own people for holiness and righteousness, strictly speaking, you should also be able to pursue a holy war because those principles which animate a government's work inside the state also animate its protection or its pursuits outside the state. Coercive authority in and out of the state operate by the same principles. So why would we not pursue a holy war by this definition? Your point about strip clubs, yeah, certainly it's true. I, if it's a non-Christian society, um, it's going to be hard to persuade them. And there I would just appeal to the same point you made. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Uh, and if it's going to be hard to persuade our present society to even ban strip clubs, how much more can you imagine trying to persuade them in a God they don't believe in, right? So, yeah, no, it's hard. And that's why Christians get involved and get engaged. And we try to make persuasive arguments insofar as we can. And say, hey, look, these strip clubs are actually bad for the city, right? The, the mere fact that it's hard doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Um, Uh, 30 seconds. Uh, uh, it was a great point that just because a law can be misused doesn't mean it should never be used. That, that's a great point. That's, that, that's fair. And that's where, yeah, it, it is a prudential argument. At the same time, I think you have too high a view of the goodness of, of governments. And I think you need a little less idealized, rose-colored glasses view of governments and a little bit more Madisonianism, power corrupts. And I, I, I think the Bible has that Madisonian power corrupts, which is why I think there is a limited jurisdiction in the Bible. So that's where I would go on that. Great. So we're going to uh, transition to kind of just a, a basic sort of general exchange between uh, our two uh, guests here tonight. Um, because we were going a little bit long, I'm going to reduce the time from the half an hour yeah, to about yeah, 20 yeah. minutes, if that's okay. So... Um, so I don't know how we want to do this. Do you want to just kind of respond and then sure. kind of go kind of a free-for-all back and forth, just no fists flying? That's okay? Yeah. All right, very good. Um, so, yeah, let me just respond briefly to a couple points you made there. Um, so your point about your question about blasphemy, um, if, if, if blasphemy is going to incite a riot, then you can oh – yeah. blasphemy is going to incite a riot, then uh, you deal with the fact you punish the riot. You don't punish the blasphemy. Um, and I would say, you know, I could say there are all kinds of ways in which uh, blasphemy can inflict, is going to inflict harm on a society. If you, un if you undermine people's uh, respect for the name of God, you're going to undermine their respect for other forms of authority. I think we see this in our liber libertine age. Uh, you say, too bad. Like, I, yes, I get that it's going to have these knock-on bad effects, but you cannot do anything about it until those knock-on bad effects happen. I would say, I don't think you follow that principle in other uh, areas of law. Um, maybe you do. Maybe you're like a, a diehard libertarian. But I mean, we don't say, um, we have police who pull people over for speeding. We don't, because that, we think that could cause harm down the road. Um, literally down the road. Uh, not, we, we don't say, we don't wait until someone dies in an accident and then prosecute somebody for reckless driving. We, I mean, we will do that, but we'll also try to prevent it. So it seems to me that if you, if, if you actually believe that um, a first-table violation is going to produce societal harm, then the mere fact that that harm has not sort of fully materialized yet um, 
It doesn't mean you can't prosecute it. I don't think we apply that standard elsewhere. On the babysitter thing, I'll just note you changed the can, analogy. Can we, can we do yeah, one, sure. th one thing at a time, sure, maybe? Yeah, Is that all right? Uh, no, I think, there's, I think there's grounds to prevent harm as well. The, the speeding would be a good example. Um, but, but, but there, I, I, do, I do think, or, or regulations for commercial airline manufacturing, Right, I think that's a very good thing that protects people. I think in each of those cases, though, that the harm is pretty, it's pretty easy to draw a straight line to imminent harm for failure to do such thing. And we can quantify it with statistics. If you compare the statistics of, of I mean, I, I hate to put it like this, but, but, but you know, poorer nations where, where there aren't such FAA-type regulations compared to, say, American or European where there are such regulations and the, and the number of airline crashes in the last 20, 30 years, it's just obvious, right? Whereas if you ask me, does Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or some other fault, what you and I would understand to be a false religion, do harm to the soul? Yes. Does it do harm to the, the, the children, the family? Y yes. Uh, could it do harm eventually to the society? Well, eventually. But, but I think you got to go pretty far down the road before you see that happening, right? Now, and now if, if, the, if the Muslim, you know, Sharia law Muslim dudes are, are, are conspiring in their apartment to take down a building, well, that, that's pretty imminent. That's pretty clear. So, yeah, we're going to jump into that. But, but merely meeting in their mosque or their synagogue for regular acts of worship, though it, it is doing harm to their soul, you and I believe, Genesis 9 is super clear. Whoever sheds the blood of man, it's just... It's just concrete, right? Where it doesn't say whoever sins against God. How do you how do you recompense God? How do you how do you measure crimes against God? It doesn't say whoever blasphemes, right? It whoever harms another human being. So in Romans 13 and in Genesis 9, it is just this way directed. It is not this way directed. And so I'm going to be measuring not by the standards of the modern academy and the, you know the fact that people can misuse what harm is and say conversion therapy is harm. Well, they were just quibbling over, over, over definitions of, of, the, of the criteria, but I still want to stick with the criteria in certain respects. Your second point, or do you want to? Well, yeah, actually, I think it's probably, we'll go back and forth on a particular, okay. particular point, um, and then if I get to the second point. Yeah, but uh, on that, let me just say, you, you know, you're sort of saying, okay, yeah, there's harm, but it's, it's kind of really hard to pinpoint. It seems to me Scripture is very uh, black and white clear about saying, Rejection of God. I mean, you see this in like the Deuteronomic blessings and curses. You know, following God. Here's all the great things that's going to happen to your society. De rejecting God. Here's all the terrible things that are going to happen. He would bring his active curse on them. Okay, right. So I think the Bible is pretty clear that the harm is 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 very real and imminent. The question of it, it could still be the case that the Bible says. It's going to be really harmful, but too bad government can't do anything about it. This is your, your argument is there's no specific scriptural authorization. But you get there by ruling out of bounds a huge sections of scripture that actually do authorize it and saying that is only applies to Old Covenant Israel. Well, where, where is it applied outside of that? What, what's, sorry. What where, you, where is it applied harm from first table principles? Where is that applied outside of the, as, as governmental Authorization. Where is that outside the Mosaic Covenant? Well, the, I mean, the Mosaic Covenant is like, you know, 75% of Scripture falls under the Mosaic Covenant. No, I understand. Yeah. And then, and then in the New Covenant, the New Covenant is addressed to the church out, out of political power. It is not addressing the task of the Christian magistrate in, in more than these passing, you know, references in, in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 because that's simply not within 
the scope of what the New Testament is talking about. But the point of appealing to natural law is if you believe that natural law provides a moral foundation, then you, you do not have to assume in advance that Scripture has to specify everything. Um, nature does not destroy grace, but perfects it. Or, or, sorry, grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it, right? Mm-hmm. So when the gospel comes, it assumes the natural law to be in place. It assumes these norms from creation to be in place. And if something was normally a function of government and acknowledged to be, uh, you know, regulating right religion was understood to be a function of government, not merely by the ancient Jews, but by everyone around them. They assumed that was a function of government. Uh, New Testament doesn't have to repeat that uh, in order for it to be true. It's assumed to be true. Uh, You seem to suggest earlier, just poking on that point, that the, um, the, this, the experience of Old Testament Israel is actually proof against, like, here's why you don't do it. They tried to, they tried to enforce the first table. It didn't work. Obviously, they weren't, it was a bad idea. That's not how the biblical text itself speaks. Hezekiah and Josiah are praised for their attempts to renew that enforcement. Um, so, I mean, again, so I'd at least want to pin you on that point and seeing, like, I'm not going to concede that Old Testament Israel was doing something wrong in trying to enforce the first table. It seems to me they were doing something that's, uh, was is standardly recognized to be part of the task of God. Number one, the harm that came on them was God's specific judgment. I'm going to raise up the Assyrians to come and destroy you. It wasn't kind of worked out just in the life of Israel harm as such immediately uh, until they started sacrificing their children's idols, right? Uh, so, and that happens in our culture. We, we do the same thing. Our false god leads to abortion. So, yeah, it's and we should work against that, but there, but, but there the harm is very quantifiable and real. But all those Deuteronomy 28 things you're referring to, well, that, that, that's, a, that's a little different. I think that's, that's God's specific judgment on them. It is interesting to me that your approach to Scripture versus my approach to Scripture are very paedo-baptist versus Baptist. You assume that, well, if as nothing is said explicitly, it continues. And I'm like, well, no, I'm just going to stick with what is explicitly said and what's not explicitly said. So we are approaching the text differently, I think, in that regard and, and applying the typical instincts that a Baptist versus a Pado baptist would have on those topics. Um, what was your last point? Oh, it's, do you actually think that... Well, I think you kind of covered it. It's fine. Okay. Can I move on to something else? Sure. Okay. Babysitter analogy. It seemed to me you changed the analogy. So in the babysitter analogy, all right, uh, parent <laughs> equals God, babysitter equals civil government, children equals uh, citizens. citizens, members of society, right? I'm infantilizing. And then them. you, yeah, you change it. You change it to two babysitters, and you said one babysitter cannot force. And the I'll other just keep changing it to make it work for my argument. Okay, so all right. So now I would say the two babysitters. That's that's two different nations, right? Oh. And I would say one nation cannot force another nation uh, to honor God. Um, just one babysitter is on an equal playing field with the other babysitter. They don't have authority over them. Uh, and which, so I would suggest that I'm my thinking, argument I'm does not justify like, holy war. No, no, no. I'm thinking more like I got two senators. I got two governors. Okay. I, got, I got, because now if you have a king, fine, right? The, the king can do what he wants. Bring it on. But God save the king. <laughs> and, well, and I mean a real king, not a fake one. <laughs> so did I. Right? Uh, but that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a, a republic in which power is distributed, not even just to the senators and okay. the mayors right. so and the people. About, all right, so I can't, I as a Christian senator cannot go and, uh, you know, torture another Christian, another, a non-Christian senator into uh, 
you know, joining my Christian caucus, right? All right, but I can attempt to persuade him, right, as you said. And I think you should. All right, so let's say uh, I successfully persuade, you know, 51 senators, or myself plus 50 senators, uh, to either acknowledge Christ as king or at least, you know, like you have, you have a number of the founding fathers that are based, that sort of in their private correspondence, like, yeah, I don't really necessarily believe this Christianity thing, but I sure hope everybody else does, right? Uh, so, you, you know, you get 50 senators on board with the Christian caucus, either because they've actually accepted Jesus into their heart or because they feel like this is good for society, all right? Now you've got the Christian caucus. Can those senators uh, enact, can they send, let's start with the strip club thing. Can they say, hey, we're really going to pass a, a federal ban on, on strip clubs because uh, we believe Tommy, as Christians, we believe, it's harm, yeah, we, we believe it's harmony marriage, but we believe that as Christians, here's our, here's our sort of full rationale for it, right? Now, you might say it, it might or might not be prudent, certainly in our society as it is right. now, to go sort of, to use that as your leading rationale might not be prudent. Um, but is it wrong in principle for them to pass a law articulated on the basis of, uh, as I say, a recognition of the authority of the mandator, God? I, I want to I be... Uh, <laughs> Honestly, I do think that's tricky. Uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to have law speak for people. If that law is representing people who don't believe in God, that, that makes me nervous. I certainly am happy for any senator to say, look, I'm, we're putting in this the law because this is harm marriage as God defines it in the Bible. And I'm happy for it to be a, a motivation and even a publicly stated motivation as such. But when you start to put it into the books themselves, that's why I, I do get a little nervous. Uh, I use the mortgage example. Like, why would you make a mortgage with your non-Christian banker? I, I want your mortgage to state true and right things, but why would you put Jesus' name into that mortgage? I, I, I don't think that's going to help him. I think it's going to potentially work against him actually knowing Jesus. Uh, I, I think... I think it, it, it is, it is going to falsify the statement from the very start, in a sense, because he's not actually agreeing to those terms. He is not agreeing to the terms in this document that this is because Jesus is Lord that we're going to keep this mortgage and I'm going to pay back at this interest and so forth. So from the get-go, you are, you are sponsoring a false document. So... The public square are laws that we pass. This is common grace, common covenant activity, not special grace, special people activity. And, and what I don't understand about the whole magisterial Protestant or theonomist or Christian nationalist impulse, any, okay, take those out. Anybody who would implement the first table of the law, go with that, is it's, it's trying to impose on non-Christians in, in this negotiating table. Here we are in the public square, pluralistic public square, something that just doesn't belong there because they don't believe in Christ, you see. And, and to make it work, I have to imagine a society that I don't think has ever existed. Or maybe I, I could keep going. I'm going to stop. If we want to turn, maybe we can, you can call us first tabularians, maybe. There you go. First. first tabularians. Those won't enforce the first table, if you're looking for a term. Anyway. First tabularians, yeah. yes, thank yeah. you, good, good. Um, it's not going to sell as well as Christian nationalism. But uh, So, interestingly, on that example about the mortgage document, I mean, historically, um, I certainly know in English law, I don't know, I, don't, I, I imagine certainly in early American law, uh, it was customary to explicitly invoke <laughs> the authority of God uh, 
in just regular legal documents? Within the context of Christendom, okay. I assume all right. that would have been. So, so, all right, you're making arguments, but in our current pluralistic context, you shouldn't do this, all right? Now, let's say we're successful. Hold on. Mike, Mike, are you driving back? Can I get a ride back? Right back to the Sheridan? <laughs> Just got called out. I'll get you an Uber, Never mind. Then. It's okay. Never mind. Um, so, he looked befuddled. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yes. So, in a Christian society, all right, um, you're, you're okay with it. You're saying at least if the majority... Now, you, you still got your issue of, like, there, there could easily be plenty of people in the society that aren't actually Christian. But it seems like you're now saying maybe... If it indeed is a kind of majority Christian society, then sure, go ahead and put God in the legal documents. Uh, no, I, I, no? I, I specifically didn't say that. Okay. I said, um, I mean... But why not? Because your not argument sure. against it was... Because I don't know that it accomplishes anything. There it is in the Canadian Charter. What did it do? How's Canada looking today? What is it going to do? I mean, I, I really mean to, 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 to impel you with a question. I mean, how is that going to help your non-Christian friends? No Jesus. I just don't see it. So I could stick them there. But what's happened in the last, co- I mean, you know, you, you, you've made the point and others have made the point, you know, made the point that there it is in, you know, U.S. documents. Right. Has that prevented anything? What's gone wrong with America? Is, 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 it, is it that those things weren't in the documents? No, they were in the documents. I would say what's gone wrong with America is bad churches and a host of other things, right? I mean, uh, we have... I don't see what those documents actually accomplish. This is a pragmatic argument. Yeah, sure, 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 absolutely. And I would say you've got 1,600 years of, you know, Canada is the heir of 1,600 years of continuous history of Christian states publicly recognizing uh, the authority of Christ as the ground of their government, right? And there were, the church went through lots of ups and downs and periods of greater uh, revival and periods of greater nominalism. But I would say on the whole, uh, the church did pretty well in those 16 centuries, and so if, if the argument is that the public affirmation is... Um, Sorry, the church did pretty well? Yeah, I would say the church did pretty well. And yeah, I, would see, say, see, I would say the church is doing badly. Like, yes, we still have some of those things in the books, and that's not preventing a slide into irreligion. Uh, but we have less of those things in the books than we used to. So the argument that um, having them on the books seems to make no difference whatsoever to the Christianness of a society seems to me to be contradicted by... Many centuries of Christian history. Yeah, I think. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, it, yeah, brother. I think you probably have a, a a view of a broader path to salvation than I do. The fact that Europe was baptized as babies gives me no assurance that it was people by born again believers. I just nor that they were moral societies. I mean, do do we really want to go back and dig into 16th, 17th century and, and say it was a moral society in a host of ways? I think we, we both know it is. It wasn't. It's was terrible in many ways. Uh, and and I, I don't know why you would assume that so much of it was, especially in the Middle Ages? Yeah. Really? Was, right, was, it, was it Christian? Yes. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we're a majority of the people... Born-again Christians? You right. say the church did right, pretty right. well. I, I don't think it did well from, from, from Constantine at least to Martin Luther at all. Now, there were moments, yeah, there were flecks of life, but the church did well. I Let's, don't know any person who says did, it did well in those times. Did marriage do better under those laws than it's doing now? The reason I ask is because let's 
Part of my argument, part of my argument is that the acknowledgement of the first table helps you a lot. I, I agree the primary task of government is second table, but I believe that to do the second table well, you need some acknowledgement of the first table. And if you don't do that, your second table things are going are to go to hell in a handbasket. And so, uh, are, are more people, were more people going to heaven in, you know, 1470 than 1970 as a percentage of the population? I, I don't know. None of us have any way right. of knowing. Sure. But we can say that um, Christian laws can have good this-worldly effects, right? And so it seems oh, to me agreed. that... Certainly. Yeah. It seems to me that marriage is doing a lot worse now under the denial of the religious foundations of society than marriage was doing in Christendom contexts. And as if we love our neighbors, we should care about helping protect their marriages. And if we care about helping protect their marriages, we should point people to the one who established marriage. Well, number one, I'm not sure it did go so well with Henry VIII and, and so forth. Uh, and there was that because was in so far as marriage was preserved as a as a as a institution between men men and women was that because uh, of enforcement of the first table or because law itself recognized the good of marriage, which is precisely what I think it should do. It falls within the dim, facilitating the dominion mandate. Now, how can you and I go back and trace out causality? Well, it was because of the first table stuff. No, it was because of the second table. I, I think that's just going to be really hard to do. I don't, I don't see how that's possible. I guess I would, again, just appeal to the Bible. Uh, and natural law, you said, is the foundation. Well, yes, but we only know in an authoritatively binding way we, what's, what's revealed to us in the Word. I don't want to relegate the word to second status based on my view of natural law, what it is and what it isn't, and what it would give to the sword holder. I'm going to say, I'm going to, when it comes to picking up the sword and using force, I don't trust your assumptions or his assumptions or my assumptions about natural law. I'm, I'm, I'm going to trust what the Bible says. And so that's where, again, I just want to say, let's just look throughout authorization that goes to the nations, recognize the uniquenesses of Israel, but recognize that with Israel, that job responsibility divided. Okay, so Israel, I am your God, you are my people, keep the full law, be holy because I'm holy, it didn't work, and so now, who does he identify with? Not the nation, but the church, be holy because I'm holy, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, be baptized in my name, God places his name on these people and gives them a comprehensive law, so there, there is a kind of you're retiring and stepping down, and now I'm dividing your job responsibilities between, you know, this, this guy and her. I'm dividing up responsibilities that once just belonged to you, and now it's going to two different people. I, I think clearly that's what we see in the movement from Old Covenant to New. Can, can I ask one last yeah, quick question? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're so we both agree the Bible is the final authority, um, but we also believe that the Bible shouldn't be interpreted by, you know, private opinion, but interpreted... Uh, with the church, would you would you at least concede that your interpretation of the Bible's teaching on this uh, is the minority report in Christian history? I, I, that doesn't make it automatically wrong. It just means I'm appealing to the Bible too, just the Bible as more commonly interpreted through the ages. I don't know. Is a right teaching of the gospel, as you and I understand it, when we look at Roman thousands of years of Roman Catholicism and we look at Russian Orthodoxy and Eastern Orthodoxy and other traditions that are less clear and confused and sometimes contradictory to the gospel, would you say you're in my understanding the gospel is the majority? 
I'm not sure I would. I, I would think it actually might even be the minority view among churches. Does that mean I think my view of the gospel is wrong? Not No, not, no it doesn't by sure, any means. Sure. So the mere fact that it's a minority, number one. Number two, I don't know if it'd be the minority view. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I got the first five, first 400 years, and I got a whole lot of Baptists since the 16th century. 282 years. Right? Since the early 1600s. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, since at least John Smith. All right. So um, we're going to transition now to open things up to the floor. Um, so anybody here who's interested in engaging in this conversation, we'd welcome you. Um, I want to start uh, myself just to sort of get the gears going. So we've got two guys in the back with microphones, so you just raise your hand, uh, and then uh, they'll come find you, and uh, you can ask your question at the mic. Um, I wanted to start. Uh, you, you, I think, and, and correct me if I if I phrase this, uh, uh, if I phrase your statement about uh, Genesis nine incorrectly with the image of God, Genesis nine six. I think you were saying that Genesis nine um, it, it pertains particularly to the the second table. Um, That's what's get authorized there. Okay. Now it does rely on. A theological grounding. Okay. So for man was made in God's image, and I and you've heard me say this before. Insofar as a government denies God, Soviet Union, China, Saudi Arabia, it will soon move towards injustices. So yeah, that's 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 very true. So the the question I had then, would the image of God issue at the end of of, of verse six there? For in the image of God, God has God made mankind. Um, there's creation language there, God made mankind, but the image of God, if you, you know, like when James talks about the image of God, if you, if you slander somebody, you're striking at the very image itself, which seems to be then you're actually striking at God when you slander another image bearer. So would that not actually have direct reference instead of more of an implied reference to the first table? Because that actually... So criminalize... A, that's, that's a, well, that's a question of... Uh, I'm just trying to think of how the, the first table could work. So... If I slander you, I'm actually attacking the image, yep. and that's a, yep. that's actually a worship category, right? Yep. And yep. so, would and and because the first table of the law slander me, a fellow human being, right? I'm slandering you, but I'm actually attacking God's image in you, which is a worship condition, right? Like because it's the image, uh, and so um, so would that then not pertain actually to the first table of the law, which is actually concerning about uh, concerned with worship of God? So isn't isn't the first table actually implied in Genesis chapter nine six? The verse also says, whoever sheds the blood of man, blood, very concrete, very clear. We can all see it, touch it, right? right. So you're uh, super shedding, you're shedding so, an image bearer's blood, so, which actually affects the so insofar, insofar as slander produces palpable harm, yeah, you can take people to court for that today. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, my point is is that any kind of attack on the, on now, the image I, is an attack on God, which is actually a worship Jump issue. in on this real quick. Okay, so um, anyone who sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. All right. So every society on some level recognizes murder is wrong. The problem is what most societies through much of history have done is they've said, well, you know, if I kill a fellow Greek, free Greek, that's murder. If I kill a slave who is a barbarian, that's not murder because that's, that's not really a human being in the same sense. It seems to me it is only our belief in human beings as image bearers of God that actually secures the universality of the sixth commandment. Uh, so... Again, that's just a very concrete, if you do not uh, continue to maintain the public conditions for uh, what, the, what, what counts as a, a human being, an image bearer of God, um, then you're not even going to be able to uphold the sixth, the, something as basic as the Sixth Commandment. 
I agree and disagree. I, I agree. First of all, you're saying everything I said before. Insofar as I, insofar as I, I deny God, that government is going to veer towards injustice, right? Again, let's look at the Soviet Union. So why don't we tell the let's, government not to deny God? Let's... What's that? So what, if that's true, why don't we just tell the government because, not because, to deny be, God? Because is is not ought. Just because it's true that for me to deny God is going to lead me eventually to injustices does not mean you have been authorized to criminalize my unbelief as in, in some form or fashion or, or, or downgrade my citizenship status. That's the criteria. So I do think the verse very much leaves attention in our hands, which, which, which first tabulars try tabularians. to tabularians try to eradicate. Uh, whoever says the blood of man, man has made God's image. Well, clearly you have to enforce that to enforce that. So let's just. Well, no, I think I think the text leaves that tension right there for us, and I think I have the rest of. The Bible, the New Testament, establish especially to say that tension remains in place, so my, which means I can, I can, um, I can, I can criminalize the, the moment, or moving up to the moment in which harm is coming to a human being. But I, I can't finally. How do you measure a crime against God? I just the 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 the, the, the text, which which eventually yields a lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth is interested in due process. It's interested in parity, one for one, not life for stealing a horse, right? Doesn't say that. It gives me due process. But now you're interesting into some, you're introducing something in, defiance of God in and of itself, apart from harm to human beings. I don't know how to measure that. I don't know how due process is on that. Could, could you not say, though, that like taking the, the life of an image bearer is idolatrous? based on that text because the image bearer is actually the image of God. Sure, right? but what's so actionable? first table issue. But what's, 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 what's actionable? What makes it actionable? What's the trigger? What's the criteria? Somebody's been killed. It's not the idolatry. The idolatry hidden in your heart, as you talked about, isn't what makes it actionable. But it seems like the text is saying is God's greatest concern here is that you've taken the life of an image yeah, bearer. That that's the foundation. Me. You've attacked me. That's what makes it wicked. Yeah, which but, is what a, makes, but that's a first table issue. Well, everything is a first table issue. Okay. Literally everything is a first table issue. That doesn't mean Caesar, Caesar possesses everything that's God's. We cannot criminalize all sin. All sin's a first table issue. You're telling me you should criminalize all sin? No, but this text is actually justifying the, the problem based on the image. Based on, we criminalize it based on blood of man. That's the trigger. That's the it criteria. Says image of God. Well, that's, the theolo that's the theological foundation, but what becomes actionable for human beings. I feel like we're circling because everything I'm yeah, saying yeah, seems yeah, yeah, yeah. really yeah, we, obvious we to me. Yeah, and I assume you same understanding here. me. Same here. <laughs> Can I just see if one distinction might be helpful? So you keep coming back to the enforce. You said, um, so you said that we can't, um, we can enforce the violation of Sixth Commandment, we can't enforce the violation of the First Commandment, right? Um, what I'm suggesting at least is the enforcement of the one require the enforcement of the second table requires the acknowledgement of the first. I'm curious if whether you're, you're really shying away from even the public acknowledgement no, of the I, truth I, of the I first. No, I specifically in my talk no, okay instead of endorsed it. Yeah, you know, individuals, but that's private acknowledgement. Right. A, a, a senator as an individual can acknowledge God. And everyone but, should. Every, every senator should. I just can't make them. 
nor do I'm sure I have the authority to make them. You can go after me now, Ian, if you want to. Oh, you, good. You good. So, so I saw there's some hands up there. Yeah, so yeah. maybe we could go to Kayla, my, my student there, so she can make me look cool. I'm just curious. Um, this debate required you to take a stance today. Could you please clarify your burdens of proof? Burdens of proof on what? Whether what you are arguing today. Act, act? Your specific stance on the issue of what you are arguing today. In like one sentence. My, 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 my position is that religious freedom exists in or tolerance in the domain outside of what God has authorized government to do. And people will best know Jesus when government stays within its jurisdiction and acts as a prerequisite to salvation. And the church is given the task of making disciples and exercising authority over right doctrine and right citizenship in the kingdom of God. And, and my view would be to say that the testimony of nature, scripture, history, experience, um, all point to the conclusion that it is impossible in the final analysis to separate out uh, the enforcement of merely human justice from uh, a, a religious reference point. And therefore, uh, government has to, in some way, secure the conditions, secure the, secure the conditions for human justice by um, giving, granting God justice, giving God his due, right? And so I would say the burden of proof, I would say, is to, to show that it is actually possible for a society to, um, to separate out the, the moral and religious, um, or or to show that uh, Scripture invalidates that, right? I mean, that there's a, a normative versus regulative principle thing going on. That's a key point, right? Uh, Jonathan is going to say, show me the Bible verse that specifically authorizes this. I'm going to say, uh, it is assumed to be authorized. Uh, show me the Bible verse that deauthorizes it. You want to grab a mic to this guy over here? Thank you to both of you. Uh, question for each, please. Dr. Littlejohn, can you please distinguish your project from Christian nationalism? Uh, where it overlaps, where it's distinct, where it relies on, where it stands apart. Uh, Dr. Lehman, uh, also on that first table, and so appreciative of your desire to stick to the exegetical. Take, for example, blasphemy. Uh, what if we change it not from whether, but which? So that there is um, blasphemies being regulated today, uh, compelled speech, hate speech. Without getting into First Amendment freedom of speech, it seems clear that our way our culture is understanding blasphemy now has been horizontalized about what we can say about other image bearers, never about uh, vertical dimensions with what we should or shouldn't say about God. And then uh, how about the first commandment? <clears throat> Romans 13, authority is coming from somewhere. Is there ever a role for the magistrate to either enforce or push some sort of transcendent authority beyond themselves. Uh, so pass over the second commandment and regulative principle or fourth commandment and Sabbath for now. Is there any role for first and third? Thanks. Okay, so Brad, go first. Sure. Um, I mean, the problem is 
Christian nationalism is a term that like everyone wants to attach their own meaning to it. Um, so to say how do how is what I'm saying relates to Christian nationalism, you know, as defined by by who? Um, I did a <laughs> I did a talk last week, sort of you know what is Christian nationalism? It took me an hour and a half to kind of sort out possible different meanings of the term and which ones I'd be okay with. So um, I will say for a minute and a half, maybe now, um, I would say that you know the the best form of Christian nationalism is is that which uh, recognizes. Well, first of all, it's not first and all talking about Christian government. A Christian nation, a nation is to speak of the a people's self-understanding, a sort of co- a collective psyche, um, which is established by linguistic ties, cultural ties, shared history, um, shared, shared stories we tell about ourselves in the past, shared language that we use to talk about ourselves in the present, shared virtues that we believe must be repeated in the future in order to keep the future and continuity of the past. I would say that's what a nation is. And so what is a Christian nation? A Christian nation is one that tells Christian stories, uses the Bible it's kind of, um, uh, to tell stories about who it is as a nation. I mean, the, the founders often referred to the revolution in terms drawn from um, the experience of Israel coming out of Egypt, right? Um, the Christian nation uses Christian terminology, and it has a Christian idea of, of, of virtue. And Christian nationalism... Uh, recognizes that's that's what a a good Christian nation looks like, and there's a reciprocal kind of two-way street relationship between law and culture. Um, that a a culture that sees itself as Christian cannot help but promulgate Christian laws, um, and to the extent that it's but simultaneously the promulgation of Christian laws, and this is where I disagree with Jonathan, does actually have an effect in m- making a society. Um, at, at the very least, act more Christianly. Does it mean that there's more people who go to heaven at the end? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I would say laws can create a context within which the church's work can flourish. But there's a two-way street. A Christ, Christian nationalism wants to reinvigorate a Christian culture so that that will be reflected in law, and it wants to use law pedagogically to re- encourage the reestablishment of Christian culture. So in that sense, I'm on board with it, absolutely. What's a, you said there's a good version. What would be a bad version of it? Then? Uh, I would say a bad, the, bad, the version that spooks a lot of people um, is the idea, it's, particularly, it's kind of America as a, as a chosen nation. America needs, to be, America needs to be a Christian nation because God needs America to fill out his, like America is God's chosen nation to fill out, to carry out his blessings. Give it historical redemptive significance. Exactly. Gives, gives the nation redemptive historical significance. And so we by golly, we got to make this a Christian nation again because otherwise Christ's kingdom will fail. Um, I think that, you know, that's, um, you know, that's Eric Metaxas with the shofars, you know. Um, you know, we're, we're, we gotta, we got to march around Jericho and save this thing, right? So uh, I think that's, that's what we want to avoid, absolutely. Um, so we do need a healthy eschatology that relativizes um, our political aspirations. And I would just say, actually, this is a point I want to make earlier, so just throw it in right, right here. Um, Part of what I believe is that it is precisely by acknowledge, a public acknowledgement of the first table of the law that a society is able to practice more religious freedom. If you believe that God is God and not the state, then you will, you, you won't, you, you'll give your citizens more space. I'd say nations that do not acknowledge that God is God and therefore treat the state as God don't actually create room for religious liberty. Did you want to address that? Well, to throw in my, my point sure. randomly there, too. I, 
and I know we, we would probably disagree or argue about history and what it's shown. It's, it's funny, I was talking to a, a British friend doing a, a podcast with him, and he's like, you know, we have an established church, but Christianity's been dead here forever, whereas you guys don't have an established church, and yet you have vibrant church, evangelistic, and even public engagement by Christians in the public square. I, I, would, I would actually argue that a free church in a free state, which with exceptions here and there, on the whole has characterized the United States far more than it's characterized Europe, and I, th I think we see the evidence both of real active church life as well as Christian engagement in the public square in our country versus the continent. So I, I, I actually think, in some sense you're right, religious freedom is, is helped by a nation that acknowledges God, but that it acknowledges God in the hearts of its people, in the pulpits of its churches, and even from time to time in the mouths of its legislators. But I, 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 when you start to legislate that, at least in Europe's case, that doesn't seem to have gone very well. Your question about whether or not which, well, in one sense, that's true. In, in one sense, everything we do in the, uh, in the public square is going to represent some God, absolutely. Um, that doesn't mean, however, that we should give the government all expansive jurisdiction, right? And in fact, I would say it's New Covenant Christianity more than any other religion, functional or institutional in the world, that says, friends, we're not going to try to impose ourselves on you. I would say progressivism today very much wants to impose its gods on you. They're going to criminalize and they're going to call you a blasphemer for not affirming that child in your kindergarten class as a she when, you, when, when, when it's a he, right? And, and that they're going to call that hate speech or blasphemy or any number of things. It's actually New Covenant Christianity, which is, you know, the one religion that says, no, we're not going to impose all of those things on you because we actually don't think right worship and right action finally depends upon the sword. It, it finally depends upon New Covenant hearts. And so I, I do think New Covenant Christianity goes about it differently than every other functional and institutional religion in the world in that regard. Um, and we, 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 we do seek to limit its jurisdiction in the ways I've, I've already talked about. That was your second question. I don't remember your first. I don't understand, yeah, I don't think Paul understood himself, nor do I think we should read Romans 13, and I'm repeating various commentaries on this, I, as critiquing Caesar. He was writing in the context of Caesar, and he wasn't critiquing Caesar for what he was doing or not doing. He was just saying, Caesar's there to reward the good and punish the bad. Do we think he wanted Caesar to acknowledge God? Well, yes, in some sense, but I don't think he was wanting Caesar in his present state to enforce his paganism. Of course, obviously, right? So, I do think he was saying Caesar's there for these second table, as it were, it's kind of a broad brush, purposes. To the gloriously bearded man in the back. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. It's been an interesting evening. So uh, to return back to the sort of parent babysitter thing, um, <clears throat> I don't know if... Beat this horse to death. Yes. Well, I don't know if any of you have uh, read Matthew Lapine's book, The Logic of, of the Body. 
uh, what he does is he sort of like breaks it. He, he's recovering a, um, a, a reformed tradition of psychology. And he, and he shows that there's this tiered psychology in the reformed tradition, uh, wherein the soul and the body are sort of communicating with one another reciprocally, right? So like habits formed in the soul manifest in the body and vice versa. Uh, and this is why a, a sort of injured soul can create an injured body uh, or if I injure my leg or something and I'm, you know, sh shacked up in my bed for a month without, you know, interacting with humans, the soul begins to feel the dent of the, of the body. And when it comes to legislation, I wonder if we can apply this there. So it's like I tell my children, I have a 15-year-old and an 8-year-old, and it's very odd being a parent of a teenager, but I am forcing him to do things, right, like against his will because it's for the good of his soul. And, and it's with an explanation, but it's in the hopes that I create a pattern of behavior that becomes habituated that can sort of uh, create momentum. That you mean, he can, you're talking about like going to church or reading his Bible? Uh, going to church, praying, reading the Bible, family worship, eating dinner as a family, uh, open conversation, just, you know, discipling my, my, my son. Um, and, and the hope there is that the conformity, the external conformity, is going to penetrate into the soul to create a habit uh, that he will then take and pass down to his children. And then we have the Stenberg legacy, right? So this is me looking generations down. And I'm a Baptist, by the way. Uh, so I wonder if the law can function in the same way. So it's not like you know, wielding the sword of power for conversion, but it's sort of uh, inculcating a virtuous habit of the social hive mind in order to create an atmosphere uh, that finds social credit in virtuous behavior. Uh, and isn't that good? Uh, and so, you know, if we say that is the most good we could do, especially rooted in the highest good, uh, then what's wrong with that? It sounds like you want to legislate Phariseeism. They were very interested in outconform outward conformity and habituation of good moral behavior. And if we would only do that through the state, well, now we're getting somewhere. And I, I don't see it. I, so would you rather be a, a neighbor to a Pharisee or to... Uh, the spokesperson for LGBTQism. Can I can I can I choose an option besides one of those two things? <laughs> no. I mean, are those my only options? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> well, can I just note Jesus, Jesus doesn't say don't do any of the things the Pharisees do. He says do what they do and do more. Right? He says the thing about the tithing, the mint and dill and cumin. Remember, he says um, this you should have, or and then and then then them dishonoring their parents. Right? He's saying this latter thing you should have done while also doing the other things. Uh, so. Jesus does not denounce the Pharisees for a, life, a, a, a lifestyle of outward conformity. He, just, he denounces them for doing that uh, to the exclusion of a regenerate heart. Yeah, doesn't he also indict them for binding people's consciences and loading up on them things that, that they ought not to load up? Yeah, I mean, so he certainly, I am not arguing for a Christian magistrate um, 
adding additional things uh, beyond the natural law as clarified and restated in the Word, right? I, I, think, I think the last thing I would say, brother, is, yeah, you do that when they're little, but I think as they get older, you start doing what? You start taking your hand off in their adolescence, in their teen years, right? At some point, I don't know, 13, 14, 17, I mean, you know, you and I might make different judgments on that. But you and I, all, all of us at some point with those teenagers, at some point, we're pulling back. But now you're saying, let's put it back on with the state. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me. Does the state ever function as a kind of nursing father to uh, a nation when they're more like children so that they can grow up into being mature? Or do we just assume that all the people in the, in the state are already mature? Even, no, I'm not talking about age here. I'm talking about like actual maturity. Um, so it seems to me that you, you, need, you need two ministers. You need the minister of the soul, which would be within the, within the church or within the spiritual realm. And then you also need a minister that's more temporal. And both of them are trying to like grow those citizens up into, a, into a respective maturities. It seems like you're just assuming that everybody's just going to be mature right off the bat and we just let them go instead of actually kind of cultivating that in them from both from No, both I, no, no I, I, I don't know I'm assuming maturity at all. I'm just saying the state has this jurisdiction to establish a platform for salvation. Should the state, and, and, and not, to, not to actually seek to engender salvation, that's the church's work. Uh, I, I guess I'm thinking should in terms the state, of like a should the state be human a, flourishing that can include kind of to, to the bearded guy's point back there that the you're more to, than just a bearded guy. No, um, but to, to, in terms of both body and soul, you know, should like, the state, in, in, no. like Luther's inner and outer man. I mean, I mean, should the state be a nursing father? As you said, well, that that's how that's how uh, Xi Jinping likes to be called. He likes to be called uh, Xi Da Da, right? He he. He wants to take, he, 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 da, da. He, he wants to take precisely that fatherly, oppressive, totalitarian role. That sounds terrible to me. Um, and I, I don't think we should take the fatherly role and just impose it on the government. Now, it's true, the Israel, Israel was a patriarchal society. It's even true, I'll grant that at one point David Cole saw a father. He's coming out of the cave. He's like, my father... Uh, so, so I'm not saying there's no overlap, but I don't want to stretch that analogy too far. Uh, and the habituation of good moral behavior in the citizenry. Now, it should promote second table of the law things. Absolutely. It should teach those things. Yes. But uh, again, I, I, I'd go back to what I said before. I think there's just a highly idealized view of good authority here that history does not bear out. And I'm, a, I'm writing a book on good authority. I'm all about good authority. But as Christians, we've got to keep our eyes on good authority and bad authority, authority in creation and redemption, and authority in the fall at the same time. And what I feel like magisterial Protestant or second tabularism offers me is simply, hey, authority can be for good. Sure can. It can also be terrible. And when I look at much Christian governments, we see a lot of terrible, right, in the name of Christ. And that's terrible for the witness of the gospel. So I feel like I've been sitting in the hot seat in this whole conversation. 
Sorry. You know, I, I'm sorry. I, I made a fellow Baptist be... your moderator. It's not my fault that he, I know, I know. That he ganged up on you. I know. Some friend. Is there some sort of like magisterial Baptist <laughs> thing that people are talking about? <laughs> um, another bearded man in the back there also seemed to have a question. Thank you for this very spirited uh, parochial discussion. I find that... And I love this man. <laughs> yes. I love and this we, man too. That's wonderful. Um, I call it parochial and I call it a discussion because I feel like you're both largely uh, in the same camp. I would describe uh, Dr. Littlejohn as a hard Christendom thinker and uh, Dr. Lehman as maybe a soft Christendom thinker. Boo. So I find more sympathies, Dr. Lehman, with your side. Um, but I also call it parochial. Um, I wonder how you It's would... very American, isn't it? I wonder We'd how have you a very would, different yes. con conversation if we were in Iran or China or you pick. What would you say to them? That's my question for you. I'd say build healthy churches. What, what would I say to Christians in Iran or China? Yeah. I would say you're in the position uh, that the early church was in. Uh, you are praying for an end to persecution. You are seeking to convert and spread the church in the midst of persecution, and you are hoping to convert your leaders so that they will stop the persecution, stop passing uh, ungodly laws, and start passing godly laws. I mean, it's striking. When Constantine comes, the early church doesn't say, oh, darn it, we just have a, now we have a Christian ruler who is, you know, abandoning the gospel by claiming to be a Christian ruler. They say, no, God has vindicated us in our suffering. Now, um, God is bringing us a Christian ruler who is putting an end to pagan practices and positively promoting Christian practices. I think that's what the Christians in Iran and China should be looking toward and praying toward, is their own Constantine. I'll, uh, I'm going to exercise my privilege as a Just, just don't do what those holder. Christian rulers did and, and slaughter the bar barbarians or those who denounce the gospel. Um, a related question, and back to something we said about Nebuchadnezzar. You're thinking of pagan rulers who... Um, did or didn't enforce religion. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar was the exception, and he said his decree was descriptive rather than prescriptive. You know, don't really tear people's arms off if they don't worship Yahweh. Um, how about the king of Nineveh, who is a non-Israelite uh, in the era of the Old Covenant, but not under the Old Covenant, who would seem in his decree to weep in sackcloth and ashes because maybe God, i.e. the God of Israel, will relent, would seem to be legislating and promoting true religion. Um, Jonathan, what would your take on the king of Nineveh be? I would need to look at the text. Uh, Shall I read it? It's very, you're, you're very short. Seemed to, I, I, I think that's precisely what I, I, I would agree with what uh, Brad said. You know, you, you should say to the king of Nineveh, you should, you should say to you know, the Chinese Communist Party, repent, or judgment is coming. I think that's a great thing, and I'd love to see them repent. I think that repentance will manifest itself in all sorts of ways. But should they call their people to repentance? Yeah, so would you say to the king of Nineveh, whoa, don't tell everyone else to weep in sackcloth and ashes, because that will make the ones who aren't really repentant, make it harder for them to come to Yahweh? I, I think the king of Nineveh, I think, I think Christian kings and princes and senators and so forth can't evangelize. I is that evangelism can, if it's an official decree to, to the nation? Is that evangelism? I, mean, I don't think so they America can. Did I, this. Do, do I think they can uh, say, repent, 
And if you don't, I'm going to bring the sword. No, I, I don't think the king of Nineveh did that, nor do I think anything in Scripture tells me they should, including that passage, though I would need to look at the text. Right. I mean, it's, the text says, he issued a proclamation by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, etc., etc. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. This, this idea of a Sounds public... Sounds great. Yeah, okay. Okay, so a public, public authority in his public office issuing a public call for fasting and prayer. George Washington did it. John Adams did it. A lot of early American presidents did it. King Nineveh did it. You okay with it? I, I think <laughs> governors can evangelize. I don't think they can say, and if you don't... And this is where I'm simply saying that law can have a positive function as well as negative. Law can sometimes say, this is good, do this thing. And it sometimes says, and if you don't do this thing, I'm going to punish you. Other times, prudentially, it's more effective to say, this is good, do this thing. And then it's simply, if you don't, then your neighbors are going to kind of look at you funny, you know. Okay, so we're getting really, I want to make sure that we honor everybody's time here. He's waiting for me to drive me home. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> So, Maybe not. so I'm going to wrap this up now, if that's okay with you guys. Um, so we've been going a good hearty time here. So um, I want to just first of all offer uh, my own personal thanks. I, I, you said there you felt like you were kind of being circled. But your, your, your articulation of these issues and then your ability to very clearly and, and, and effectively respond to them is actually helping me personally. So I, I'm actually very, very appreciative of of how, how you presented and then also how you've articulated response to these questions because I think it's very, very clarifying. I think that's what a good debate does. I feel like, and I'm sitting up here, I don't know your perspective, but I feel like this was really, really helpful in terms of being able to, to set both the things that are shared between you guys and then the things where there are differences in a clear way. I hope we, yeah, my, my, my prayer is that we would bring more light than heat. I, I, th yeah. I, I feel that. And I th I th I th I'd like to think we accomplished that. I do believe that. Yeah, and, that, and that's something that I'm, I'm very thankful for, and I'm, I'm thankful for, for, for Brad being able to do exactly the same thing. And uh, while I'm on this uh, kind of like a train of gratitude here, let me just thank also all of you guys for coming out, especially in this weather. Um, I'm thankful to CCU for being willing to host this, so to our uh, Chancellor, Dr. Sweeting, who's been here, uh, to our President, Tim McTavish, uh, I also want to express thanks to my own dean of the School of Theology, David Cotter, who, who um, was very supportive of, of us hosting this event. And then uh, some of the administrators that uh, got all of this set up, uh, Nancy Miller, I want, to, I want to throw a shout out to, as well as to Betsy Simpson in the Chancellor's office, uh, to Walter and to Boz in the back there for doing all the great work in terms of recording and live stream. Thank you guys too. Um, and now we'll close with thanking God. So let's pray. Um, our God, uh, we all here in this room do confess you as the true king of the universe. Jesus Christ, you are king. And uh, Lord, we uh, humbly bow our knee before you and worship you and acknowledge you as, your, as the sole authority over uh, your good kingdom. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be good and faithful servants and citizens of your kingdom as well. Uh, Lord, I pray that a discussion and debate like this really would be something that would be encouraging, that would be more light than heat. Uh, Lord, I pray that as this continuation, the continuation of this conversation goes on, that that would, it would be done in that exact spirit. Uh, Lord, I pray for everybody here as we will be going back to our respective homes or hotels, uh, that in this weather that you would grant us traveling mercies, that we would get home safely. 
uh, that we'd be thinking about these things, not merely for intellectual purposes, but because, Lord, we want to know you uh, better. We want to worship you well. Um, so, Lord, we, we pray all of these things now in the very strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.